Well, great segue. Let's jump right in. Jump right in. So, hi everyone. My name is Jenny. Welcome to Miami Luke Podcast. Today's special mm. guest is Jason Poblete. Thank you for being Thanks here. Thanks for Jason. having us. You are welcome back to Miami. I guess you're telling me. Yes, right? <laughs> welcome back. Thanks for <laughs> Last having me. Last time you were here, you were. I was uh, up in Central Florida. Electronically, electronic. I was in the ether somewhere. Yeah, you were somewhere over here. <laughs> yeah, but you mean it looked real though. It looked very we like if I was here. We tried. We tried. No, it was very, yeah. very well. Thumbs up to the producers, by the way. They're yeah, not awesome, me. They're doing an awesome not show. Not me. Awesome <laughs> I show. can't take any of that credit. Yeah. But he, today you're going to talk to us about the Global Liberty Alliance, mm. which is your organization. Hmm. Well, it's not mine. Well, it, it, it belongs to uh, a lot of liberty warriors in different yeah. places. It's an organization. Yeah, we found it several years ago uh, up in Virginia. Right. And now we're in a, a, a new phase uh, trying to bring in new actors and new players and get more engaged in the liberty battles in a different way. So I look forward to talking with you about that. I'm glad to be in Miami again. It's been a while. I've, I've been away for many, many years. I have family here, though. So I've been here, I guess you can say, since the 1970s. So, wow. Yeah. But you visited, right? In a your lot. time in Washington. Oh, yeah. yeah. We came here all the time. Back and forth. Yeah. I mean, we were married here. I was, I mean, I was born here. Yeah. Baptized here. Married here. I have all our in-laws are here, my family. So, yeah, we, we, we kind of, our family came from Cuba in the 1960s. Little by little, they came right. out. And they settled here. Some people were sent up to Ohio and didn't like it. It was too cold. Huh. They came back. And some of them stayed, but most of them stayed here, yeah. So we're born and raised in Miami and uh, spent time a while in Washington, D.C., up in Virginia. It was great. I thought I was going there for just two years. That was the master plan. In fact, it was the year Andrew, Hurricane Andrew, hit the United States. And oh. I went up to supposedly just grad school. But then it became four years, and then it became six years. Uh, but I still always kept the Florida and Miami connection. Again, family, and you're always yeah. from here. So, yeah. It's home. Uh, it's home. It's home. And thanks for doing this, by the way. It's an awesome, awesome podcast. Congratulations oh, on, on, on the product. And you're going to have a lot of success with this thing. A lot, a lot of stories to share. Thank uh, here you. Here in Florida, so. I, I, yeah, I hope so. We're yeah. trying our best. Yeah. Keep it going. What do you think about the changes Miami has been through? You know, every time I come hard. down here and I come down, I mean, I, we come down every year, several times a year. But the last 10 years, it's just completely, the city's like it's evolved into something completely different than the city I knew. And uh, it's it's good, I think. I think there's a lot of challenges also. Uh, yeah. I see a lot of uh, old Miami, new Miami, uh, Miami that doesn't really exist anymore. On the In the political space, which is the area that I tend to be more inclined toward, and I think it's things need to kind of be shaken up a bit, um, not because things are not working right, but there seems, there seems to be a lack of focus, I think. Right. Uh, and I don't look to government for a solution, by the way, quite the opposite. Yeah. But there's so much regulation now. Uh, and it existed back then, but they keep adding and adding and adding. In fact, it's interesting in our transition into Florida, even though we had the reputation for, you know, one of the free estates, I got to say there were a lot of taxes, a lot of licensing and regs that we don't have in Virginia. We didn't have. Really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I Sometimes did not it, know that. It, well, huh. it's. You notice when you come down here, right. it's great we don't have a sales tax, but what are they sticking, you know, how, what things are they sneaking into the regulations and the codes and the insurance and the this and the that? That's true. 
and they're taking out of your pocketbook another way. So there's a lot of work to be done in deregulation. And we're very passionate at GLA about property rights. I think that's pretty much a founding principle of why we do what we do. And property rights are pretty intense um, to the individual. That's how you become free. That's how you stay free. And I just see a lot of regs, you know, pick, pick, pick. You know, yeah, we don't have a state tax, but hell, your insurance rates are super high. Yeah. Very high. Our car insurance, I'll give you one real life story, real <laughs> life story. Our car insurance tripled from what we paid in Virginia. Oh my word. Just because of the state. And we're not even in South Florida, we're up in the central part of the state. Right. If it had been down here, who knows what it would have been. And we're, we're safe drivers. So th there's, a lot, there's a lot of awesomeness about Florida, especially South Florida. There's so much potential here uh, for growth and uh, hopefully development in a way that keeps the communities vibrant. But I also see a lot of disparity. And it, it's especially through little, if you go through Little Havana, for example, yeah, there's a lot of area there that just doesn't, you know, you, like the development's not keeping up with it. And yeah. some of it's flash in the pan investment, as we call it. But others, you can tell there's something there that's just not right. Now, I'm not sure if it's zoning laws or regulations or a combination, but from our clients, people that we've advised over the years who we had uh, many clients from Florida and here in South Florida, that was a frequent uh, complaint. The regs, it was difficult to do business hmm. um, in certain sectors. There, it is changing and there are a lot of new leaders and I was, uh, I've seen a few running for office now with uh, these, these great messages of, you've interviewed a few um, and there's some running in Miami-Dade County who, who I think are, are making, starting to make inroads, at least waking people up. And that's something we've always said, by the way. I, I spent, before we created this organization, um, before I practiced law in the private sector, I spent time working in Congress. I spent time working at the Republican National Committee. I was there for seven years. And the one thing I can share with folks is that the power is not there. The power is down here. And we focus too much on what they're doing up there, not enough on what's happening here. Right. And now we're finally catching up with that. We would always say that as conservatives and Republicans, why are we worrying about trying to fix Washington? That place is complete. And by the way, it's lost. This is not a new phenomenon. It's been that way for a long time. They've been picking our pockets for a long, since probably the end of World War II, they've been picking our pockets. And it's only getting more intense. Here's where we have the opportunity to sway and make an impact. Whether you're a Democrat or Republican, it doesn't matter. Right. That's one thing that's changed about me since I left Florida and came back. I used to be a lot more partisan. Yeah. That's gone. I don't believe in either party. I think we have to focus on our, our country, our, yeah. our neighbors, our friends, uh, and keep the government accountable. And if they're not working, find someone else. Yeah. Keep them out of our way. Did you, while you were up there in Washington and there was, or there still is all this divisiveness and this turmoil, how did you navigate that? It's always been there. And I know some folks who are active in politics claim, oh, this is, at least in national politics, oh, this is the most divided we've ever been. It's always been that way. And maybe if you, it depends on your time perspective. And if you go back to the founding of the Republic and you look at when the founding fathers, and you go read the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers and, and read uh, some of the transcripts of the congressional debates after the Republic was founded, 
we were all pretty. They were pretty rough on each other back yeah. then. And, <laughs> yeah. And they would. That's know, true. They they they'd say uh, certain things a little more gentlemanly like. Maybe they'd go out and in fact that's duel. The, that's right. They'll duel. They'll 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 write under pen name. You, you love to write. Mm -hmm. You know you have. It's a show about writing, partly, and you know they write on the pseudonyms to go attack, you know, attack their opponents because it was the gentlemanly thing to never attack them face to face or directly. You just make up something and write. Uh, so the we've first always tabloids, tabloids, and then, so you know they were the first tabloids. Yeah. Uh, and now we're at a point where I guess, you know, when I when I worked on the hill, uh, it was going to age me a bit. We didn't have the internet. <laughs> right. We didn't. It was just coming online as a viable tool yeah. for information exchanging in private sector, in the government, whatever. We didn't have email that worked. The House email systems didn't talk to the Senate email systems. Everybody was siloed under the old, I don't know the framework, what the, the software they would use for that. But C-SPAN was a fairly recent phenomenon, putting C-SPAN in there. Um, I worked with a member of Congress who was a pre-C-SPAN member. And he would always, he was in California, from Bakersfield, California. It's an awesome part of the country. And um, he would share with us how putting those cameras on the floor of the house changed the dynamics for the good long term. It was a good thing to have more government shining a light on it. But it also changed how the institution functioned because he had those cameras there all the time. Right. So it pushed the power center is maybe out away from the floor of the house because the cameras are watching. And then the internet came. And then it, it, it's, the, 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 the act of has always been there, is my point. I, I saw it yeah. uh, close up. Maybe we just hadn't noticed. Most folks don't really focus on government. Why should they? Yeah. I mean, they should, but they have other things to do with their lives. Right. And you, you elect someone, right? To go up there. To handle it for and you. handle it for you. Yeah. Not be calling each other names all the time. Maybe I'm a little cynical about it, but the, both parties have become very institutionalized and captive to special interests. That's, but that's been a problem since the founding of the Republic. In fact, Thomas Jefferson, when he had retired and, uh, you know, John Tyler was one of his protégés, not protégés, but he was close to the family and he eventually went on to be president, uh, Tyler and, and that whole piece of history, it's fascinating history. He, he was worried. He was asked, what worries you about the future? And that was it. One of them was special interests, the European interests mm -hmm. coming in here to destroy what they had done. So we're always going to have that. I just think that maybe the internet, the news cycles, which that's changing too, by the way, this, this format is revolutionizing, uh, how we engage in politics, how we engage in business, how we engage in information sharing. So there's no longer a monopoly, as big of a monopoly on information of things happening in Washington because you have these great platforms that you come out, you find good, uh, good guests, you're very focused, you're a school teacher, you, you went through that whole process and hey, I wanna take my skills to tell stories and share yeah. and talk. And that is, will change over time how the body politic engages. So you can have members of Congress sitting in here with you. That uh, would be a lot of fun. Well, you should. They should be in here. <laughs> that would be a lot of fun. All these politicians here, they yeah. gotta be in here with you and doing these shows and talking directly to people who are watching. And that's, I think it's going to, over time, 
maybe change the tone. But th that ultimately, uh, it's, it's up to us. Yeah. And we want less acrimony. Do we want people to uh, uh, do the things they're supposed to do when they get elected? Hold them accountable. You have term limits already, by the way. Every two years or every six years, you can vote people out. And you got to stay engaged. Whether you're Democrat or Republican, there's many ways to get involved. So, no, I, I, you know, I, grew, I, mean, I grew up around this, and I, maybe I'm more used to it. Um, I don't like it when people get into those screaming matches or calling each other names. Uh, but it's, unfortunately, it's become you know, much more of a problem because it grabs the headlines. It's become sensational. Right. I think people turn that stuff off, by the way. Yeah. I think most people prefer not to the, see that stuff. Yeah, I don't watch that stuff anymore. You don't enjoy it? No. no <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I'm uh, over it. You're over it? Yeah. You used to be more political then? Or you like politics? Or? I I like politics from like the sidelines, mm -hmm. like a sports match. You know what I mean? Like I it like is, to watch. It is a sports match. And, you know, cheer my person on. That's good. But I don't want to get involved, if that makes any sense. Um. But I feel like in the last recent years, I kind of don't even want to watch anymore. It's mm. There's a, a sense of disillusionment. You know, most of what you see on broadcast media, whether if it's Fox News, CNN, ABC, CBS, NBC, all of that, I call that mostly entertainment. Yeah. And also I think it's captive media. Because remember, they have advertisers. And what and who decides what to put on those screens, I believe, is driven many times by some of that, mm -hmm. even though the newsroom would say no. But maybe it's a little different in print. But I do think there's a lot of special interests, a lot of people pushing for attention, vying for something that right. maybe it, it's still important in some media markets. But with news and information being diffused this way, the way it is now, being more, it's kind of almost everywhere if you want. It's so much information. I think people keep seeking out uh, less screaming shows, more thoughtful type programming, which is not new either, by the way. I mean, if you go think back and look at, you know, think of old shows like Firing yeah. Line or the old Bill Buckley, you know, the old Bill Buckley shows, I mean, I mean, those type of when, when Bill Buckley used to go on TV, you know, William Buckley go on TV, go on TV with somebody on the other side and just sit there for an hour yeah, and just and have a conversation, and have a conversation, and not yeah. and not not chew each other up and have a quiet conversation calmly. They can both disagree on and something. Productive. Yeah, and, yeah. and give people something to think about. Right. So I think people crave that sort of thing, and this platform lets you do that. Other platforms also, and there are people who just like you. Most people, in fact, I spent. When I worked at the Republican National Committee, we were there uh, from the uh, mid-90s. So that was the year that the Repu I started the year before the Republicans won the majority in Congress for the first time in almost like, I don't know, 50 years or whatever it was. It was the first time we had that super majority. And there were other races that we won as well across the country. And one of the, deci the decisive tools in that operation was something called GOP TV. And it was a TV station that was put together by the party I mean, that was, people thought when Haley Barber did that, he, back then he was the RNC chairman, he wanted to be the governor of Mississippi, and, and, and uh, folks know that, you know, GOP TV was a tool that was used to get around that noise in Washington, and they broadcast shows on public television. Wow. Free. 
Clinton was earning, not free. I mean, the taxpayer pays for that. Right. But there was placement of these programs with the GOP message on television. And that became a tool to kind of, again, tell the story. Now, I mean, we didn't have the internet as a really effective weapon back then. Uh, tool, weapon. I like weapon. Politics. It's politics. <laughs> I understood it. It's politics. So we can say weapon it's every fitting. now. It's a tool. So now, um, now we have. Now we have. So you have a lot more yeah. opportunity to get out there. So no, the answer, long answer to your question, no, it was something you just get used to. Do I like it? No, we yeah. don't. But it is, you know, politics is a full contact sport. Yeah, it's it's rough. It's rough. It's a politics. Of, I'd rather argue with. I'd rather argue with words and ideas yeah. than with guns. Definitely. So, and violence. So, you know, we want to get, that's what's so wonderful about our democratic republic is that constitutional republic is that we can get out there and debate our opponents. Mm -hmm. We should be able to do that freely, even if it offends people, as long as you do it respectfully. I think that's a wonderful thing. Definitely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What would you say to those people that are very partisan right now and mm. You know, we see people losing friendships, family members, because they believe in a certain party or in a certain um, person. Hmm. I mean, I think that's, for those of us who grew up, for example, you know, like my family is Cuban, is Cuban, very divided yeah. by what happened in the 1950s. In Cuba, and it predates '59, by the way. So the issue, you know, the, the conflict in '59 was on a, a really a, 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 an apex. It was it was the the last straw, if you will, right. of decades of politics dividing people. Yeah. And we grew up in a household where, at least in my house, where you were taught to respect people who you disagreed with. Uh, you came into our home and. We didn't have black, we didn't have white, we didn't have yellow, we didn't have green. People had names. Um, you treated people with respect, human dignity. And I think in politics, I mean, not just the United States, there's been this erosion of, I think, we're looking for things outside the realm of, I guess, what's, uh, you know, there's not going to be a special message coming from Washington to tone things down. I think a lot of this begins in, in our homes is the reason why I'm saying that. Absolutely. It begins in our homes. And we have to teach our children and be engaged in our communities. And if we find a political person that we don't like because they're being divis divisive. And by the way, here in Miami, some of the stuff I see on every now and then I just take a peek at the county meetings. And yeah, I mean, come on. Some of that stuff. No, it's, <laughs> it's just I mean, no, <laughs> it's just how these people still. I mean, we had a, we did a show with you all recently about that. Yeah. How are some of these people still in office? No, it's a big mystery. I, I, mean, I don't know. It's it's very odd. So I think you, you, you have to keep your folks accountable. And as far as partisanship goes, like I mentioned to you earlier, yes, I'm a Republican, but I'm not a Republican partisan. I believe in my the vision of the party. Uh, smaller government, uh, less regulations, property rights. Freedom of speech, all that basic all stuff. All the great things all that the make stuff. a nation great. That's right. No collectivism and all, nope. that, other, all mm -hmm. that other stuff. Um, but I don't choose someone I support because they're Republican. No. And I uh, and that's not what I, that's not how I was maybe thirty years ago. Really? <laughs> no, yeah. I was pretty. And I still, you know, I worked at the RNC. I mean, I was like, uh, right. I was in there, Republican Revolution, take, and I, but I learned a lot. 
when I spent those years at the RNC, it was seven years of my life. I'll never trade for anything. Wow. Uh, the least paid. Sorry, guys. Uh, but I got to travel the country. I got to see races in different parts of the country. I learned the richness of our nation, how we fight in different parts politically in a good way. Mm -hmm. And it kind of gives you uh, context. And in Congress, by the way, for my super, I'm, I'm pretty, you put me on a scale, people think I'm like, I don't know, I'm right of, I don't know, pick, I don't know, you know, you know me well enough to know how conservative I may or may not be. But in Congress, remember, and this happens here too, local, uh, you know, local state, everywhere. If you want to move product, which is votes, all right, you can only do it with the people you have there. So all the, you know, my fellow conservatives, we just start railing against people because they maybe didn't vote a certain way or do that. Well, elect the right people that you want to vote the right way and get them up in Congress. By the time right. it gets to Congress, it's like the canary in the wind. That fighting that you're talking about that we all really dislike, well, we're sending people up there that are reflecting us. Remember that. That's what I learned at the RNC. That's the one thing I take away from the RNC and traveling the country and seeing things. You know, Miami guy being plumped into San Diego or Bakersfield or Chicago, Illinois, or up in Delaware, or down in Texas, or, um, I mean, Georgia, uh, New York, upstate New York with the campaigning upstate New York. And you see... It's a reflection of who you're sending somewhere. So don't forget right. that those people that we elect to Congress are a reflection of voters. Exactly. So you really have to kind of think through, well, oh, but they did that that way. Yeah, but they're representing supposedly their constituents, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's a, a lot of that, why people get turned off by it. Some of it is the personalities. Some of it also is folks just don't really have time to focus on this. I mean, I'm a political junkie, I guess you can say. I, I love this stuff. It's in my blood. I was, in fact, nobody in my family's political either, by the way. They didn't like politics. Yeah. No, my grandfather was, he was my inspiration to become a lawyer, my grandfather. Uh -huh. um, he always said, stay away from politics. Good people don't go into politics, he said. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's what, well, I remember where he came from. Yeah. He no, came, I, I say yeah. that because that reminds me of, um, my grandfather, who was he was a political prisoner in Cuba, yeah, he and he that. used to say, "There's no such thing as a good politician." <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "What?" Well, I mean, so, ima imagine your grandfather. I mean, he was there during some really tough times. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know how how much time did he spend in jail? I think almost four years. That's that's four years yeah. too many. Yeah, absolutely. Those those are very special people, by the way. Yeah. political prisoners, and. The, the fact that you had that upbringing, and I think most Cuban-Americans who know something about their past have a healthy respect for, and they know that you have to defend freedom no matter what, but also you, it's not this zero-sum game all the time. Mm -hmm. But we all have a healthy skepticism about politicians because of what our parents, our grandparents, right. great-grandparents lived through. And at least for me, I'm first generation. So I was born here first from the crowd that left in, 59, mm -hmm. in the 50s, late 50s, early 60s. For us, we were really intensely raised around the whole, you know, Cuba thing. Yeah. Miami was intense on Cuba. Today, this is child's play. We don't do anything here today any compared to, I mean, we're talking about hunger strikes. I'm going to tell you a quick story about that in a minute. But my very first political event, 
And this was just kind of, sh- it shocked me. And, I'll, and, and I think it's still one of the most seminal events I think I ever participated in, impacted me ever since, it involves political prisoners. But we were raised around that whole culture. So the first generation, oh, you have to succeed, you gotta go to college, you know, they drove us hard. My wife yeah. and I were, you know. They was drilled. I-E, 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 yeah. you know, old school. And that, I think, I'm glad to see it's continued in subsequent generations because they keep leaving a place that's not the happiest place to be. It's sad when you think about it, but it was intense. The the politics here is funny because everybody talks all the Cuba fight here, Um, the usual, you, you know, the debates. Well, my very first Cuban exposure to diaspora politics was a hunger strike on 8th and 27th Avenue. I didn't go on hunger strike, but there were about, I don't know how many men and women underneath some tarps yeah. right there. There used to be a bank on 8th and 27th, right into Little Havana. There were all these people on hunger strike. I don't know what that was. So my dad took me out there for my, I don't know how old I was, maybe 13 or 14, and goes, this is, this is why, we, why we left. And you're seeing these men and women underneath these tents with IVs, some of them, because they hadn't eaten in days. And hundreds and hundreds of people there every single day. Now you're lucky you can get a crowd of people for, I don't know, just about, maybe July 11th maybe there were some crowds. But back then, you're talking about the whole city would be shut, the whole old Little Havana would be shut down. There'll be... um, That must have been impressive. Well, you met political prisoners. Yeah. Met people like like your, like your, like, like your, your family members who lived through that. And those men and women, there's something about them. And you hear their stories. People like, that we don't talk about these people anymore, like Armando Valladares. Mm-hmm. He's still around, against all hope. Uh, we're talking earlier about Antunes. You know, Antunes is here now, but he spent almost 20 years in jail in Cuba. Um, there's Oscar Elias Bisset, who was, I think he's the first and only Cuban political prisoner who, he's still in Cuba, and he has the Presidential Medal of Freedom. George Bush oh awarded God. him that medal. And he had to have it given him post, uh, you know, post his release, and only after years. The Bush was President Bush was out of office, so you had to wait a while. But he's back in Cuba still. Materati uh, Roque. I mean, you got so many of them. Blazing White. Um, I could name. I'm going to miss them. But I don't want to leave anybody out. There's a lot of people, and those people are still. And now there's a new generation of political prisoner. So here in America, when I mean, we have it good. We should be very grateful for the life we have here, yeah. that we can speak our minds and, and, and engage in this type of conversation. Because over in places like that, they still don't have it. And they probably never will, at least not anytime soon. Yeah, unfortunately, not in the foreseeable future. No. Mm-mm. Yeah, that's I stopped saying, that's rough I, to talk about. It's yeah. very rough. I stopped saying, no, next year. Yeah. Uh, I think that it, it's in a, you know, your, your, your family, is connected to the island also. Mm-hmm. And whether you have loved ones there or not, it doesn't matter. Um, the sort of scars that leaves. Now, I believe scars make you strong. So I think, you know, I was, that's, that's my grandfather and my dad's way of, that's how we were raised. No, that's just, yeah. you're being put to the furnace. All right? If you want gold, you gotta melt it. Uh, so it's still though, repeating itself so much. And I have a lot of friends in Cuba that I know they probably will not stay. They want to stay. They want to stay and fight. But at some point, how long do you keep someone Mm -hmm. out there? You can only take so much. And that's what's been perfected, by the way. 
a system has been perfected that not only finds a way to stay in power, but that makes it easy for people to leave. Right. Because they, it's basically now that the path of least resistance is to let them expose themselves, their fichao. Mm-hmm. And once they get fichao, they have a system, and we can document this, of how the machine just breaks you down until, until you, you decide to leave or die or go mad. And I've seen yeah. all three, by the way. I've seen all three. I've had friends locked up. I have friends that are still locked up. And it's people who give of themselves to do things that some of us wouldn't even dream about doing. But they come out broken when they do come out. And those that stay and fight, we, we you know, and they, they need our support. They don't need talking points. They don't need Twitter campaigns. They just want support. But if we're not going to help them, then we do have to start looking at how to do what we say we're going to do better because we can't keep doing what we've been doing Mm -hmm. and expect it to get better. We've been doing the same thing for how many years? Decades? Yeah. So we, 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 we either allow this to peter out, which it won't. I disagree. It's not going to peter out. Or we lean in. And some of us want to lean in. We don't know what the answer is. I don't agree with what Obama did. I'm sorry. That's not by the way I would have approached it. But I give him credit for one thing. I've said this before many times. At least he brought a a, a, um, a reorientation. Made people think. I didn't like the way they did it. That's not how you... I And then by the way, there's a law in the books that technically has a roadmap in place for certain things that we didn't do, that we should have done. But I think if we have a, a U.S interest first approach and focus on those things the Cuban people will have to figure their future out on their own that's a very tough pill to swallow for many people in our community they don't want to they don't want to talk about that but do you think that's because the U.S. has had such intertwined history with Cuba it's very close really hard to say well you're on your own that's a good question we can't because of geography, we're destined to be working together, whether right. we like it or not. Our founding fathers grappled with Cuba. It, yeah, it's it's not sixty years ago. It's no. not, you know, fifty years ago. It's it's a long, a long winding ver- history of mm-hmm. uh, interactions and political gains and uh, a lot to unravel. I mean, what do you think? I mean, some of our founders thought about Cuba should be a state. Mm-hmm. Some of the... Well, my father says a joke that he's like, if things had been different, we would have been American. Yeah, (laughs) Puerto Rico had been Cuba, not the other way around. Exactly. (laughs) So he, yeah, yeah, that's the answer he gives to everything. But you know, the the, the one trauma, and I forgot who told me this, it'll come to me. Uh, Someone here in Miami, um, either one of my former professors or a professor, makes a good observation on this on this issue. You know, Fidel came to power and he exploited something that he could have done good with it, except he did something evil with it. Yeah. It was the an ultimate betrayal, because not only did he take that history from 1902, you know, through 1959, take all the politics, that emotion that he knew was there, that alleged frustrated nationalism 
that Cuba, some people say, has always had and did something very sinister with it. Okay. He shifted her into a very yeah. dark place. He betrayed the trust of the voters, right? Or the, the people who pushed him there. I don't believe this narrative either about that he was this romanticized notion that he somehow came in there. Um, no, I have to know this topic of the show, but the, the whole way he came to power, I think, has been that we've been told glamorized. Yeah, I think it's been glamorized yeah. to the point that the whole books that can be written about that, and some of that's almost farcical, frankly. But but yeah, we're destined to be working together to figure how to fix stuff, right? And I think it's a good thing. I think that's a common ground that we have to focus on that we don't focus on. Some of that, frankly, is a lot of pain. And one of the projects that Global Liberty Alliance has teamed up with another organization called Cuba Archives, that uh, great person working there, Maria Ward Lau, she's been on that for a long time, 20 plus years, is a truth, reconciliation, and accountability project. Wow. And, and yeah, it's, it's one of the things that we don't talk much about, but in, in governments in transition, we have many good lessons uh, from the Cold War to draw from. But within the Cuban community, including the diaspora, if they want to be involved in that, and there have been many efforts to do this. There's an organization called Concilio Cubano with Father Edia, who used to be the, the um, he'd make a great guest, by the way, Father Edia. You should, you should bring him. Uh, he's a good... Father, if you're Father, listening. Uh, Father Fernando Edia. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure you bring him on. He's an <laughs> awesome guy. So he 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 um he used to be the rector of La Mita La Caridad. Oh. Yeah. And okay. he used to be... He, that he used that to, place, as you know, is so special. It's a special place. It still is. And uh, he just retired from the priesthood. He's, a, he's on our board. He's, he's one of our advisors. But he has a group that he was involved with back in the 80s that tried to bring together all these different ideas and organizations to figure out, okay... What are we going to do about that pain? Okay, how are these communities going to heal? How are we going? Are we going to have a truth commission? Are we going to have reconciliation? Are we got to have. Some of us think we got to have both. You can't have reconciliation without truth. Yeah. And you have to figure out how do you put those nations on a path to a healing process. In fact, during the look at America how the reconstruction after the civil war was handled there's many lessons in there about the uh, about how the civil war post civil war and that whole reconstruction period how that was handled and they grappled a lot with of course with unique to america dealing with an institution that uh, caused a lot of harm to yeah. um, the african american uh, people uh, but they dealt with it was it perfect? No, but there's many good lessons there about right. what you what you should and shouldn't be doing when a nation has a bloody war like that. Cuba hasn't had a reconstruction or reconciliation or a rebuilding process. So there's a lot of groups that have been studying this. Our organization believes that we need some structure or set of uh, a process of some sort so that people can... Mm -hmm. either air this out. And by the way, what that means for one people may be different from what it means to another nation. Right. The Cuban people got to do that. But I don't know how you do that unless you talk to each other. And the Cuban people are an interesting group because we're we're so diverse, mm. uniquely diverse, mm -hmm. you know. Um, you had, and I think this was, this applied more to 
you know, half a century ago. Now it's more mixed, but you really had your neighborhoods of Lochinos, you know, the Chinese immigrants and the Italians and the Jews and the Spanish. The Lebanese. The Lebanese. And everybody would, it was always like, that's a, you know, that's a white (laughs) issue. That's a a Chinese issue. No te meta. Um, At least that's, those are the conversations I recall that, you know, my, my grandparents would hear that, uh, even though it it was very together, it was also very divided. You were told like that's not none of your business. Don't don't get in there. Um, so it, it's definitely interesting. I feel like the cultural aspect may play. play it a does. Hand. It plays a huge role because Cuba had even before the revolution in fifty nine, uh, it was struggling with some of that. Yeah. I mean, it it had its own issues. Mm-hmm. I believe a lot of it was economic. Also, I think some of it. Uh, I tend to look at issues more through the economic lens, mm-hmm. and you see uh, different socioeconomic. I mean, there were issues there. It wasn't I mean Cuba wasn't perfect, but it wasn't also this horrible place. It was thriving, right? Like I, under if you look, all the measurements. If right? you look at the data, yeah. Uh, if you don't, and uh, for what for what we knew, yes. And was it a perfect place? No. But I think Cuba was muddling its way through it. Cuba is either uniquely cursed or uniquely blessed, depending on who you're talking to, about its location, its relationship to the United States, its all, all of that. But I think there's plenty here to do now. We're talking about 59, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and 90s. Now we have a new generation leaving, and they're, they're restarting life here. Yeah. So we so we have 60 plus years of socialism, institutionalized socialism. That's a lot of time. That's more than a generation. <laughs> and at some point you have to tell yourself, okay. And how do you how do you undo all that damage? You're not gonna undo it. I don't think you we can do that in our lifetime. No. And a lot of this comes back to what's next. So one of the, the classic debate in Cuba American politics, do we have engagement? That's what the Democrats and the left want to do. Or just say the left, not the Democrats. It's more to well, our Republicans on that in that camp also. Or do you, or do we keep no engagement and you just have a strong policy? Well, look, I'm going to share with you here today something that's going to offend maybe some people on both sides. But it's a big lie that we've been talking about since 1992 that somehow we have this comprehensive, all-encompassing embargo on the Cuban people. That's nonsense, and I could prove it. It's in the law. So yeah. there's three laws. The 1992 Cuban Democracy Act, the 1996 Cuban Liberty and Democratic Solidarity Act, which is Helms-Burton, and then there's something called the Trade Sanction Reform Act, which is the law that passed in 2000-something. I think it was 2000. And those three laws taken together did, in theory, two things. Supposedly, you clamped down on the embargo and made it really hard for Cuba to do stuff. But at the same time, you set something in motion that you want to help the Cuban people. You don't want to hurt them with the with the sanctions. Well, folks, you can't do both. Mm-hmm. We've been doing both in theory since 1992, since the Cold War, and we're still in welcoming people over here from the oppression, right? So what's Cuba's probably number one, number two source of economic income right now? Well, you know what that is. Yeah. Remittances. So we've created a remittance monster a dependent society. We are helping prop that system yeah. up. 
with every penny we sent to Cuba. Now, when some of us who were working in Congress back then would say, cut the remittances, let's get back to politics a minute. The politicians down here didn't want to do that. No, 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 no. Well, it's going to hurt the families. Mm -hmm. I agree. It could hurt, even though I think who really hurts the family is the system. But if we're sending money to the system... How does that help the families? Exactly. Yeah. So we, It's like we, a chicken and an egg problem. It's a lack of leadership problem. That's true. <laughs> yeah. It's people who... Okay, look. Let's just... In hindsight, it's easy to be critical. All right? Uh, but I can tell you that I did my master's thesis on criticizing that law for that very reason. Wow. So it's in print. It was published in 1995. Yeah, published in 1995. Which was, isn't that like the special period in Cuba? It was during a period special, yeah. Right? Yes, it was Which was like that terrible time period where you could not find anything. Even if you had the means to purchase things, you couldn't find, you couldn't find things it. to purchase. Exactly. But then what did we do? Okay. Hmm. So, in theory... You're, like, making me connect the dots right now. <laughs> Hold on. I'm having, like, a huge revelation. Well, I mean, well, think of the Cuban democracy, like, briefly, so we don't got to get too technical about this. I don't want to bore your viewers with this. But that law did a few things. Yeah, it had a lot of tough talk. Right. Cold War was over. We were going to galvanize allies to help us do certain things. Yet, if you read the fine print of that law... We should put in the program notes. I want people to read it. We can. It's yeah. very short. I'll, I'll, send, yeah. I'll send you the links. It's a very short law. I'll, I'll put the links up for you. Guess what we did? We eased sanctions on telecommunications. And we licensed eventually giving Cuba fees for reconnecting phone lines. Now, maybe that made sense. So we are now paying. So when... Is You're, that when those cards, those calling cards? That was before. Uh, no, that was after that. That was after, th okay. Th this, th this, this was like at the infancy when the Cold War was, and look, in fairness to the drafters and to people who were involved with it, I, I, I knew a lot of them, and some of them are no longer with us. Uh, they thought it would be a good idea after the end of the Cold War to, the Berlin Wall had already come down, right? Mm -hmm. To come up with a new policy. And, and we needed one. The country needed one. But the big debate then was, how do we do it? Do we go more sanctions? Do we squeeze them during the special period eventually? Or do we start throwing them a lifeline? Now, down here, that law was sold as some, oh, get tough on Castro. Yeah. But if you're giving Castro money not. just because you want to reconnect phone lines, how is that being tough? You're giving them a lifeline. Yeah. Remittances. Okay, so here's... Something else, if anybody remember, uh, remittances to Cuba are what oil is to Iran, a moneymaker. So we have decided through our elected officials, through the laws that we passed, to send money to Cuba. And then guess what? After the phone calls, guess what happened? Then began the air, airplanes, mm -hmm. the flights. The flights were not supposed, so the second law that was passed, the Helms-Burton law, which was supposed to be something that if it had been correctly applied, like the president was told by Congress, we asked you to do this, enforce it, but, but they didn't. And that's tough, by the way, to, to, to instruct the president on what to do or not do on foreign policy is not easy. But there was a roadmap there. Get the cooperation of our allies around the world to adopt our Cuba policy. Uh, settle the property claims, the billions that were stolen. 
hmm. from American citizens. A bunch of things. You were too young back then. Remember this? But there was a nuclear power plant down there, the Hurawa nuclear power plant. You probably remember the whole, they had to shut that thing down. The Russian nuclear power plant in Cuba. So there was a lot of things that were in there that supposedly were closing the loopholes for that first law that was passed four years earlier. And the only reason that law, the second one passed, was probably because of the tragedy of Brothers to the Rescue, oh, when those when that. when those four men were killed um, by the regime. And I think that set the tone about where they thought about doing Bill Clinton and, you know, Castro said, oh, no, we're not, you know, or Raul gave, actually gave the order. But uh, that law was signed. It almost didn't become law. But guess what that law also did and allowed it open more loopholes into the law. And then the flight started and the law was never enforced as Congress intended. And now you pretty much have a multi-billion dollar industry keeping the system going. And the, and the system adopted, adapted, sorry. Yeah. And they learned their immigration laws. And they figured out how to, you know, it, it, it's, I think it's untenable. And it's not right for us to continue down that road. I do not agree with engagement without, you know, with the way, with the way that they did during the Obama administration. But I also don't believe that what we were doing was working. Mm -hmm. We didn't even try, frankly. So I think it's a good time to reassess Republicans, Democrats, anyone who cares about this issue to figure out some of it is truth and reconciliation, but a lot of it's significant, bigger issues, Florida, the economy. It's, it's not just Florida either. It's Texas, it's Louisiana, it's Alabama. It's, so right. the trade impact is significant too. And that's a subject for another show, but it's 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 more economic, I believe, more economic than political, I think. Yeah. The solution. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's. It made you think about you, the you gave us special period. Yeah, you gave us a lot to think about. Um, yeah, it's it's hard because, for example, I've never been back. And I, you know, never say never, but I don't see myself going back in the mm. foreseeable future. Um, I know my immediate family, no one has been back. Just, uh, and, and a huge part of it is not to feed into this, this crazy regime, right? That's just going to take our money. But I do know people that it's it's almost like their lifeline to go back and see their family members and... You know, I grew up in a household. Be able to, to take them their medication. In fact, you could do that now, but when I grew up, yeah. in, my, in my house, you didn't even send aspirin to Cuba. Right. That's how I was raised. No, they made a choice. That, it was rough to they, hear that. they stayed. Because they stayed. Yeah. They wanted to fight that. Yeah. And maybe your uncle was involved in something that did bad to me. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think this, so, we, so some of this has become natural. Right. It's people are dying. And maybe that's part of that process that we, we have allowed certain things to happen. I, that's, but I refuse to do that. And I think that's why we in part created this organization, which for the first time I ever engaged with people in Cuba directly. Wow. Uh, lawyers, independent lawyers, human rights activists. I had never done that. That was completely new to us. I had always had contacts there, friends, uh, family members, those who talked to me, some wouldn't talk to me, 
I thought I was too, no, no, you're too political. We can't talk to you. Um, but we we decided a few years ago, says, you know what? We have to figure out what's going on down there. And there's no better way than just finding like-minded lawyers who just believe in the profession uh, and want to do good and human rights defenders who want to engage in some of that and support them. If they're willing to risk something, we would support them. And we did it. And it became a fascinating lens into what Cuba really is. And, we, we, and we don't see it. I have a silly question for you. No, that's no silly question. But I have to ask. Ask. Do those kind of people exist in Cuba? All over the place. Okay. Our network of independent lawyers, I gotta be careful because maybe yeah, we don't want some get... people will be watching who probably will try and figure out who's he talking about. But I can say comfortably that across the island, there are people who are deeply passionate about improving the life of their families. They wanna own homes. They wanna be left alone. They're tired of politics. In my space, uh, where we tend to work more with lawyers and human rights defenders, these are men and women who day in and day out go off and help people, sometimes for nothing. Yeah. I have a lawyer that I'm not gonna say her name, because I can't. But when we first approached her about doing this sort of doing this sort of work, helping us people who've been unjustly detained, or anyone in in need of dispute deconflicting, because I can share some something with you about that and give you some context. It's not just about uh, getting people out of jail. It's a little more robust. Right. And I asked her, okay, so what so what do you need? And because we, we you know we have a contract, we we, we do things like we treat them the way we treat. We partner up with lawyers all over the world, not just Cuba. That's so cool. So we, we say, okay, well, here, here's a contract. And uh, this is what we, we can do with you. And if, you know, you deliver, we pay. If you can't, well, we, we don't. We move on. It's like we do something with a lawyer maybe in Nicaragua, in Honduras, Brazil. Or I work with my peers in my when I was in private practice all the time doing transactional work. We team up with lawyers. That's how we treated them. Remember, respect, dignity, property rights, contract. Show them that they're valued and you're going to keep your word and that contracts mean something. That's an alien concept in some parts of Cuba. Yeah. Because the system has created this culture of distrust for decades. And you know what this lady wanted? A pen and a pad of paper. And I said, wait a minute, I'm asking you, no, we want to... You're writing a memo. You're, we're going to team up on a case. Let's. What, what else do you need? No, I just need a pen and paper. I'll take care of the rest. She'd walk in 90, 95 degree weather because she couldn't afford a car and didn't want to take money to we would give her a stipend. She'd know. To go to a jail to do her, to get information on one of her clients. And she'd walk all the uh -huh. way back. So that's been the norm in Cuba, at least... In the, in, the, in the few years we've been doing this, we have seen a lot of people that just want to retake control. They're tired of politics, all of them, for the that's, most part. They just don't want to deal with it. That gives really a lot of hope. Hmm. Because if, and I guess it depends on, on what lens you want to look down into. Mm -hmm. But there's this, this sentiment, right, that Cuba is just, everything's messed up and everyone's a communist. And that's not true. Um, no. In so fact, I, 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 I got to tell you that 
Well, I mean, a communist, you do have your diehards. Yeah. There is no doubt about that. But my experience with folks in Cuba, and like I said, I had never done that before. And that was a critic that my opponents always had. Well, you got to try it. You know, how do you know? You've never been there. And I've never been there. Uh, I'm open to going as long as they don't lock me up. I have represented an American, by the way, who's locked up down there. She's from Miami. Yeah. Alina yeah. Lopez. She's from yeah. Miami. She's yeah. down here. And she got locked up for something she didn't do. But I have found over the last few years that we've been talking to folks and working with people there, that there's more people that, at least in our little space, who want to stay, wish they could stay, but are losing hope that there's any good that will come of what they're doing. That is true, but I think it's more economic than ideological. The politics, culturally, it's going to take decades, I believe, yeah. to, to deal with that. Because you have whole generations that were raised now yeah. under that system. You can't just disconnect. They don't know anything else. That's all they know. That's and the older you know. generations that would tell you this is not the way it's supposed to be, or we're losing them. And... We also can't impose our way on people. That's a big one. <laughs> well, we can't. Yeah. That's what our policy used to be. Right. And it's a policy thought that happened in the Cold War. And we can't export democracy. I mean, look at the disaster of Iraq. Look at the disaster of Afghanistan. Look at the disaster. I mean, come on. Either we commit to something or we don't raise hope. So why do we keep raising hope of people just 90 miles away? And just not just it's not just Cuba. I mean, Nicaragua has mm -hmm. these problems now. They've had them for a while. Venezuela has gone down this way. I have friends in Bolivia. I have friends in Paraguay. In fact, I was talking to a lawyer in Paraguay last week about what's happening down there. There's a war out right now to destroy private property rights throughout Latin America. And there's also a war against religion all the way throughout Latin America. And it's intense. And unlike the 59 Cuban Revolution, where it was quote-unquote violent, it was, but it was especially violent after they took over, mm. the big purges that came, that we still don't have accountability for and that we need. Now they're getting a little more clever on the left. They're using law, quote-unquote. They're using regulations. They're using the media to crush opposition. And that's part of our mission, is to find people in these countries that want to stay and push back and fight them on their turf. And there's a lot of people that want to do it. So when we're Americans over here complaining about illegal immigration, okay, by the way, I, I was one of those people. Well, what did I do? Well, I went down there and looked around. What do you see? Poverty. You don't see respect for property rights. You see... Um, regulating people to death. You see estates that are growing, growing, growing to create collective cultures. Well, don't complain about illegal immigration if we're not going to go down there and do this work and back people up who want to stay in their country yeah. and fight. I mean, we, we, we do this with lawyers and we have a team of lawyers in Guatemala that we worked with that they were just totally, by the way, our government our government sometimes works against us in these, in these battles because there's a wing of people who want to see a globalist collectivist process in a lot of these countries. So your tax dollars get used for some of these experiments in these countries. 
But there are people there who want to fight. And I think we need to support them. If we want to complain about immigration, illegal immigration, we want to complain about uh, child trafficking, which we should because it's horrible, slave trade, which there's more slavery today than probably any, I mean, it's probably at a higher rate than during the African slave trade, what we have today taking place around the world with forced labor and trafficking. Then we have to engage in those places with the people who want to stay there, not work against them. If not, they're going to leave. Yeah. And what are we going to be left with? And you think Russia's not out here trying to experiment in the Western Hemisphere to create trouble for us? You don't think China's out here trying to create trouble for us? Of course they are. You don't think Cuba's a factor? Mm-hmm. Every time we go poking around in the Ukraine, you don't think? I think Cuba's one of the key players, right? Like a one of not players, one of no, the key elements. It become it become it becomes a piece of something that Russia and China now more has has held on to to exploit and cause problems. And if we keep going around the world trying to fight wars that we can't win, because frankly, I don't think there's a winnable way in Ukraine. I think that's another, um, another, uh, let's just say, um, wrong-headed way of looking at the world, old way. Um, And I'm not a fan of Putin, but it's not as if that's a surprise what happened there. I mean, didn't he say it? He announced this. A couple this, of years ago. And, or Chi- and China kind of gave him, okay, hey, you know, hold off until after the Olympics, you know, but right. one, once after the Olympics, we're there with you. Let's just, you know, so, yeah. that's it. so the whole, that's another, we're getting back to Washington again, that whole war fever, all that Ukraine war fever, that's what's wrong with our government. Your government's not accountable to you. And what they're telling you, a lot of times, is not accurate. Just like that discussion we had about Cuba. I, I firmly believe that. There have been whole political careers made and broken with Cuba. And same thing with all this Ukraine stuff. Up here, we don't see Down here, we don't see it. But when you're up there in Washington and you're surrounded by the lobbying and the money, it's, it's hard to break away from that stuff. But that's where all, everything converges. And that's where you need leaders to say no, yes, no, yes. And we need more of those people. Uh, and I think in, in Cuba, you're right. It's, it, it be, it's part of that little chessboard yeah. that gets taken out. And then the people in Cuba, though, are the ones that suffer because of it. I think we've got to start pushing back. And one way to do that, we think, is to support and back people who are going to stay there and fight, not leave. And let me ask you something, because I wasn't here when it happened. How is it that you are one day Fidel Castro, the Communist Party's favorite rapper, and then in no time, you're up here at the White House singing a song and you're a celebrity. Mm-hmm. Explain that to me. I don't understand that. I don't either. <laughs> I, I, I don't get that. Pati Vida? What does that mean? It's just like a rebranding of the Cuban. It's a rebranding. of. I, I never understood it. I re- and I still don't. Mm-hmm. How some people in government, not, not folks who don't follow politics, but... How do we openly embrace somebody who's been helping the regime so quickly? Right. Don't we even question that? Sure, everybody can change. But those of us who criticize these groups somehow go, oh, well, Jason, you're so hard. I mean, how could you say that? I mean, how could I say that? No, you've spent all this time down there, so now they want to come here and make money, get a Grammy, make money off the, Cuban, the suffering of the Cuban people. 
No, I think that's the sort of stuff we need to push back on. Yeah. Welcome to the battle if you're going to be involved. But you also need to be held to account for what you may or may not have done. And there's people in jail right now in Cuba who nobody knows about. Political prisons are full. Before July 11th, the prisons were full. Nobody paid attention then. I, we got to do a better job. And part of that's talking about it like you're doing here. And being honest with ourselves and talking to people over there mm -hmm. that we may disagree with. Not engagement, at least not for me. Yeah. But I think we need to engage more with people, no, talk more to people. And definitely there. ask those questions. Because to be honest with you, until you said it right now, I hadn't really thought about it. What part of it? The, how, uh, how are you a successful musician in Cuba and pretty much live to tell the tale? if that makes sense. There's a great organization called Estal de Sats, and they're online. And they're a group of, you know, the initial artist community, got Gorky, you know, Porno Para Gorky, you know, that whole, that whole crowd, punk rock. Gorky was kind of the early musicians in Cuba, punk musicians, underground. It's a huge underground punk community in Cuba. Nobody knows anything about them. I, I don't it's know there. anything about it. <laughs> well, believe it or not, I mean, I'm not, that's not my genre per se, but I... No, but that's awesome. But they're there. Nobody talks about these people, but they've been there for decades, fighting, fighting. And then this guy shows up out of nowhere, and all yeah. of a sudden he's in the White House. Yeah. So my radar went off, so I called these folks in Cuba. What, what, what's going on here? And I, got, I learned a lot about hmm. how the, there are accepted forms of... Because we, we had that artist, and I hope I get his name right. Oh, my gosh. Elvi, Elvis Manuel. Yeah, Do you yeah. remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was, like, very up and coming, but he was, a, like, a people's artist, if I'm incorrect, no, if I'm wrong. No, but from what I understood, he was really, he was up and coming because the people loved him. Yes. And, and there's a lot of them like that down he there. He disappeared. Who, and many have been disappeared, and some are still in Cuba, and they have no way out. He was what, 21 years old? 22? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Completely gone. There's Just another gone. There's another one, there's a few down there, but you know, Cuba has, you know, the, their little, com the Communist Party. And that's how, what I tell my non-Cuban friends, look, Cuba's one thing, the Communist Party is something else. And you have to figure that from the moment you die, the moment you're born to the moment you die, it's all part of the system. Even the arts. Mm -hmm. Okay, the arts, if you go through the Cuban system, they're acceptable artists. The moment you break or say or do things that yeah. they don't find agreeable, you're in trouble. That's it. Like it's folks over. Like, folks like that. There's a lot of them nobody knows about. Religion. There's an Office of Religious Affairs in Cuba. It's a pretty much a religion police. I call them the Stasi of religion in Cuba. They are there to keep an eye on the Catholic Church and on independent churches. We've done cases, a lot of cases in Cuba on people in, uh, for religious freedom, conscience and belief, the free Yorubas of Cuba. Uh, there's many others, homeschoolers. We've helped a homeschool family in Cuba. They control religion police, Office of Religious Affairs controls those churches. So if you're part of that group, oh, they leave you alone. But if you're not part of that group and you're an independent group, independent church, that you don't want to register your church with the Communist Party because they're atheists, oh, you're in trouble. They'll put the squeeze on you and the system moves in. Same way they treat the... So that's like the whole San Isidro movement, which I'm still studying, 
we're too quick to embrace it. Uh, I still wonder about its origins and how it came about. For all we know, it could be a Communist Party false flag operation and bring real... To infiltrate. Infiltrate and bring people yeah. out. But let's just leave it. We'll, we may never know what happened there. But that's why you saw this mixture with religious people and artists and this and that. But it was an odd, an odd it was an awkward combo. But it was there. And it's just part of the monitoring process. You just got to be careful what you do in Cuba. But there's a lot of people out there willing to stay and fight. But we're not giving them a way to do it. We're not. Because they can't live in the shadows all the time. And how long can you keep a soldier in the trenches? Yeah. I mean, can you live there 25, 30 years doing no. the same thing over and over and over again? No. Being monitored, being listened to, being spied mm -hmm. on. At some point, you crack or you leave. I don't yeah. blame those people for leaving. I don't blame political prisoners. I mean, Antunes. Antunes, which um, his brother... And his uh, sister-in-law and yeah, his stepbrother. Let's, let's I mean, talk about yeah, them. and the and the twins, the 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 twins that were part of the Free Yorubas, are part of the Free Yorubas of Cuba. I mean, he was in jail for almost twenty years. Antunes was, and he was only forced to leave because he was worried about what something that had happened to a family member of his, one of his children, an infant. So not only did he live through that, his theme was ni me callo ni me voy. That was his big claim to fame, uh, his, his moniker, his battle mm -hmm. cry was Nima Kalini Mawai. But how long does a human, how long are you going to ask someone after they have spent almost two decades in a prison? Yeah, they've been broken down. He still stayed in fight, but then you talk about his baby. Come on. You got like your two little girls. I mean, you saw somebody doing it to your two little girls. What are you going to do? It's over. It's over. It's game over. It's mama, over. mama bear is coming. You, out. you, yeah. You touch the part <laughs> that is not meant to be. You not, know, you touch the untouchable, and that's when you have to, I guess, figure out what's worth the fight. You know. Well, the system knows how to push those buttons. They're experts at They're ex it. Every government's an expert at it, but yeah. this one especially has perfected they've it. They've got right, right. They they, they've it. got it down to a T. I mean, down to like the what do they call it? The Comité. The Comité de Defensa Revolución, your neighborhood in, block in people. Your, right, it's like a neighborhood crime watch, but they're not watching for crime. They're watching for you, making sure you're not doing anything that you're not supposed to be doing. We, From in, who in, comes in, into Bibles. your house yes. to visit you, yes. to what kind of merchandise you were carrying home from the grocery store, to who you were talking to on the phone. We have clients, we have clients who are uh, blocked or mar marcados mm -hmm. because they hold Bible study in their house. Yeah. Which requires sometimes, you know, more than one person. You can Bible study by yourself, but you bring in two or three people in a room, that's it. Under the code down there, you're breaking the law, you need a permit. And we had a lot of people who said to the government bravely, we're not going to apply to a permit to do Bible study. No. The Yorubas, they would get in trouble. Can you explain what the Yoruba is? For people that may not know, you mean the Free Yorubas of Cuba? The, I mean the it's a belief system. Mm -hmm. You mean the whole Afro Afro Cuban? I guess yeah. yeah I mean it's it's an Afro Cuban belief. Some call it <laughs> some call it a religion, and uh, it's a syncretism, if you will, between African Yoruba from Nigeria, Nigeria, right? and it's, it made its way to Cuba long, 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 long time ago. In fact, according to the Yoruba practitioners down there I've dealt with, and even some here, who we've consulted as experts 
for the work that we That must have been so cool. Yeah, it's Catholic kid going around defending Yorubas. <laughs> I was, love it. It was, uh, I was asking Father Eddie, are you sure I can do this? Am I all right? But yes, we, when you, def yeah, it's the fundamental belief. And that's, yeah. that's how, how they did it. It's theology. That's what they want to live. Yeah. And they have to be respected. And the government didn't. In fact, the experts, we consulted on this. And we found this, I mean, anecdotally, like I can't, you know, there's no uh, study done on this that we found, was that it's the one group that the Communist Party tends to be very hot and cold with it. They try and keep their distance, hmm. either because of superstition, but they're very influential. But even they are divided. So there's some that are part of the system. They're part of that Office of Religious Affairs, and they have liaisons to certain babalaos and all that, so it's all very well structured. However, these, the vast majority of them are independent are underground. Now, by the way, they were always ostracizing Cuban society. So pre-Castro, they were always on the margins of society. So they weren't treated the best. But under the communist system, the repression is so intense that it's most of the practitioners that we've worked with and have advised uh, won't even manifest that they do this. So it's com almost completely underground. But there are exceptions. Some of them are you know, Loreto and his family, uh, they decided a long time ago, partly inspired because of his, his stepbrother, Antunes, Jorge Perantunes, that they, they, they were tired of being in the shadows. And years before July 11th, um, would refuse and they would do ceremonies at their house. And the Comité de Defensa Revolución would get upset. They'd report them. The cops would show up. But these men and women... They openly resisted. This is before July 11th. No, let's remind everybody. Mm -hmm. In Cuba, it's not like you move and you're new to a neighborhood. These neighborhoods, you've been probably surrounded by these people for generations. That's right. Your neighbors are your family. That's right. Right? Like you mm -hmm. see them more than you see your extended family members. Mm -hmm. And some one day, the neighbor to your right decided they wanted a phone line. So they became the comité person and now all of a sudden this person you you went to for help this person you spent christmas with mm. is now out to snitch on you and that's again goes back to how we were raised yeah they turn and this is something we need to think about in this country too the system not that we're this is not a communist country far from it uh but there are things that happen and the pandemic was a good example. You asked me that question earlier about what happened during the pandemic. And that should be a lesson to all of us. The, the revolution is something very sinister. They use the family against itself. Destroy it. Destroy the individual for the collective. Destroy private property rights for the communal property rights system that Cuba still has to this very day. So anybody out there who's saying Cuba has private property, no. No, they don't. But people believe people actually say that, that oh that's right property in Cuba no there isn't even the constitution says there isn't so they turned against the individual and they used the family unit the traditional family unit to destroy them and that's a great example about what these people go through and it's tough. But, but but these folks have decided to stay and fight and I see these battles there and I wonder what happened during coronavirus by the way. Where you had people turning against neighbor, 
snitching if they're wearing a mask or not a mask? Are they getting vaccinated or not vaccinated? Are they posting it on Facebook about it? Are you, it, folks, no, don't turn on your brothers and sisters over stuff like that. That's what the government is trying to control you. Yeah. That's what it is. Then people think it's conspiracy theory. It's not conspiracy theory. It's a form indirect of social control of some bureaucrat up there who wants to tell you how to do something. Well, you have to look at it the other way. They work for you. You don't work for them. Mm-hmm. It's your body, your mind, your home. In fact, as we move into this century now, it's going to be the biggest, I think, one of the bigger spaces we're going to have to carve out. How do we protect our mind and our intellectual property? Our freedom to think and write and say what we want to say. It's coming under assault. And this new economy that's taking, taking shape right now, what you do, for example, you should be able to talk to anyone, say whatever you want, without fear that you're going to be shut down over some yeah. regulatory issue. So I, I think we have a lot to learn from our friends in Cuba about what not to do. And interesting, those that leave recently come here energized because they're free. They don't know what they can and can't do, but when they know they can do what they want within the law, they, they're free. And they're yeah. very productive, uh, very uh, um, constructive members of our society. But I'm afraid we need to also get a handle on what's happening down there. Because that's, I think that's untenable what's happening. And it's going to break one day. And July 11th was our, probably our only warning mm. that if we're not careful, and I'm in a minority on this, on this view with Cuba watchers, but I believe that if we're not careful, you're going to have a bloody war in Cuba. Brother against brother, sister against sister down there. Retributive justice. There, a lot of people don't agree with you on that? A lot of folks, experts in Washington, do not believe, really? at least before July 11th, they thought, oh, if they haven't done it yet, they're never going to do it. And I don't know. I don't know. It, it seems like, and and you may be able to shed more light on this, but it feels like Cuba's government has been able to perfect what I call the pressure cooker, mm-hmm. which is, you know, they crank up the heat and the pressure's building up and the pressure's building up. And then they watch out for, okay, when do we release a little bit? Like a frog in the, in the pot type of thing. And when it's time to release... They shove a lot of people out of the country. Go, do whatever. We don't want you here. And then back to cranking up that heat. That's exactly. I don't know if that analogy no, no, makes any yes, sense. Yes, it does. It, it's exa- that's how it yeah. works in my brain. No, that's how it works in real life. That's exactly what they are doing. In fact, the lawyers we work with at Global Liberty Alliance who are part of our network, those in Cuba, they tell us almost without exception, Boleta, get ready. Yeah. They're going to purge again. And then we'll just go back. Yeah, and it just feels like one day they're going to miss that small window of releasing that valve. And that, like we say, shit's going to hit the fan. It almost did. In July 11th, I think it almost did. Because July 11th was, in hindsight, it still is. I said it during the initial outpouring. It was was there in 1989. You know, it was there what we saw behind the Eastern Bloc at the end of the Cold War in different countries starting in 89 where people just had to say enough their berlin wall moment eventually right mm-hmm. and it's going to take its own cuban flavor and i am one of the few who think that it's going to be violent if we do not do something to figure out a way and by the way it's part of our policy technically in our in these laws that we spoke about earlier it says peaceful transition to democracy right 
And I think that's in the U.S. interest. I think we don't need a civil war 90 miles away from mm -hmm. us. We don't want a bunch right. of Cubans killing each other. Retributive justice. And by the way, I've seen it here. I've gone into uh, my, my, my in-laws have, this happened last year when they went into some, a bakery nearby here, here in Kendall. I'm not going to say which one. <laughs> and some lady walked in that turned out to be one of those chivatos that you were talking about. And when they walked into the bakery, the lady behind the counter recognized her. And they almost came to blows. I believe it. They almost came to blows. My, my father-in-law was there when that happened. So that's, those are the things we have to be, I think, thinking about long-term. And how do we deconflict exactly what you're saying? The pressure cooker effect. Because it just kicked the can until a crisis happens. Then July 11th happened. What the politicians do, like with Q, like on Q, they embrace the first thing they came that they can get their hands on, put a put a slogan on it. Let's have a rally at Versailles and everybody go home. Yeah, that's not good enough. Although we want people to get engaged, and there's, it's so easy today for people to do stuff with very. You don't have to jump on a plane and go to Cuba to do stuff. Today you have the internet, you have technology. You can donate to battles that there's a lot of good groups out there and you can help build and support people who've taken those risks. We have never had that in, 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 in political engagement ever in our history. So imagine what Gandhi could have done if he had had the Internet. Oh, my gosh. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe maybe Gandhi would not have happened with the Internet. But. Imagine something of that at that magnitude, the, the, type, the type of things you could do today that you couldn't do. So there's a lot of good news, a lot of good things that can be done, but we just need to have the leaders in place and, and, and the energy in place to do it. Well, you know, what happened to Alina? Well, Alina, you know, right now I have to be a little guarded with, with um, what we say about the case yeah. because we're still trying to bring her here and we're making progress. And uh, we hope to have her home soon. I hope that we will figure out a way to have her be reunited with her family. But she was caught up in, from what we can, from what we know, uh, somebody was trying to get to her husband, who used to be a Cuban diplomat within the Cuban government. He was trying to leave, basically get away from all of that. And somehow she was ensnared in something, was lured to Cuba by her ex-husband, her husband, who was somehow in Cuba, locked up. And she went. And when she was going to leave, they picked her up and threw her at Montenegro Women's Prison, which is a very rough prison for political prisoners and um, not the nicest people in society at any given time. And um, she was sentenced to more than 10 years in prison. Oh my God. But and she's an American citizen. Yeah, she's an American. So, and she's not again. The, by the way, she's not the only American. There's a, we believe there are as many as 19, according to the sources. I have from U.S. government sources that there may be as many as 19 Americans imprisoned in Cuba, some of them unjustly imprisoned in Cuba. She has a profile of a case that they accuse her of being, by the way, she was tried by a Cuban military court, which under their own laws, they're not supposed to try a civilian in a military court. Right. 
How does that make any sense? It doesn't, but that's what they did. Because they, they consider her a spy, a traitor, whatever you want. Come she's, she's Cuban also. So they, they, they imposed this arcane section of their law that technically applied to people like you and me, even though I was born here. If I go over there, I may have to travel under my mother's name, which means I got to get a Cuban passport. Or technically, they still consider me a gusano, even though a lot of the people, a lot of the my more progressive friends say, oh, Jason, that's an arcane law. They never enforce that. In theory, until they, decide until, they, to. until they decide to, and I go, and I've never been there. They don't, they don't even give me a visa to go to help Alina out. That's been interesting. Hopefully someday when she gets out, we'll be able to share that story so people know what it took to get her out. But the the hurdles that we have to go through in some of these cases, but technically I'm one of these Gusano generation people. Why? Because I was the son of a mm-hmm. person who left in the 50s and those people in the, in the early 60s, and those people were treated as total outcasts or were the... Technically, I got if I go back there, I'll, I think that law may have changed. I can be, I'm not too old now, I'm 52, but they'll throw you in the army or something or lock you up for whatever. But my liberal progressive friends say, oh, Jason, they don't enforce that. But in theory, yeah, that's what happened. But anyway, Alina's case, uh, hopefully we're, we will be resolving it soon. Uh, I got to say that the Biden administration has been helpful. Uh, they and so have some members of the Florida congressional delegation. And... And frankly, uh, some people in Cuba, too. Uh, on, on human rights, there's no Republican, there's no Democrat. And when an American is in a jam, America's supposed to come to the defense yeah. of Americans. And the number one duty of the U.S. State Department is not the, you know, it's not the U.S. Global Department. It's the U.S. State Department, America. And that's, I believe, their very first and most important duty is the security of Americans. And that's one of them. And we have to help bring her home. She does not deserve to be there 13 years, I think, supposed to be her total time there. How if, long if, has if, it if, been? It's been more than five years. So oh if, they don't, if they don't extend. And by the way, her mother, 93 now, lives in Miami Beach. That poor woman, when she came to us two years ago for help, uh, was flying to Cuba in her 90s to help her daughter because not even her own government paid attention. Can you believe that? Our State Department wasn't helping. An American got locked up and a 90-year-old woman was flying to Cuba. It was a political case. It was an unlawful detention case. She was taking food to her daughter, flying on an airplane, showing up at court, showing up to speak to their lawyers, which are from the state. And she kept doing this several different times. She would jump on that airplane at Miami International Airport, I think at 6 in the morning or 7, whatever flight that was, until the pandemic, to go to Cuba to try and get her daughter out of jail. How could we not help when they came to us? And we, and we hopefully, we're getting close, uh, but we need the stakeholders to work together to, to bring her home. And she's not the only one, by the way. There's other Americans unjustly imprisoned. We're not representing others in Cuba, but there's not, they're not the only ones. That's but you know there's more. According to the lawyers we've worked with and even U.S. government sources, there are more, as many as 19, not including Alina. Including that makes 20. That's insane. It's a large number. It's a large number. Yeah, significantly large. And, you know, if, I, I feel like as Americans, we we live under, and maybe it's, say, uh, it's not realistic to feel this way, but we feel like when we travel, we have that security blanket of we're American, right? Okay. They're going to come for us. Something no. happens to me. No. Somebody's going to show up and help me. They won't come for you. And they won't come for you. They won't for come you. for you. 
I mean, in, un in unlawful detention cases, I think it's important for your viewers who travel, and I love to travel. My wife and I love to travel. And, and I think folks who can do it, it it's, it's a privilege to be able to travel. It's not a right to, you know, you have to pay, you have to mm -hmm. learn. So it's, it's, uh, we're, we're blessed in this country. We can do this sort of thing. And in the world uh, that we're living in, it's good to get out there and travel and visit if you can. But you need to do your homework when you travel. You should always check your State Department travel warnings. It's not just about buying online your place to go and reading, <laughs> buy your tickets and buy Rick Steve, you know, read Rick Steve books or the travel books, read all that. But you should also set a little bit of time to kind of learn about the country you're going to, learn about their laws, if you're gonna drive, learn about what their laws are and figure out, have a game plan. Because if you expect the US government to come writing and get you out of jail, it's not going to happen. And that's not their role either, by the way. No, it uh, shouldn't it, be. It, it's not the role of government to be yeah. nursing and going after everyone. No, you have the freedom to travel, exercise it, but take responsibility when you travel to places. I, I don't recommend anyone go to Cuba or Iran. I've represented people who've been held hostage in Iran. I still do, including some, a resident from California and someone from Virginia, uh, North Korea, um, North Korea. Syria. Oh, I didn't represent anyone. I'm, I'm giving you places that I don't recommend people oh, go. So I thought you had a client. No, 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 no. I, I, I never wow. so, 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 So the places that I caution people are places like Iran, Cuba, even Venezuela, mm -hmm. um, North Korea. I represent, I help someone, represent someone who's a hostage in China for almost 10 years, an American. Wow. His name is Mark Sweden. I think everybody should look him up, yeah. help Mark Sweden out. His, his mother, who's out in Luling, Texas, she's a remarkable woman called Catherine Sweden. That lady has been waging a one mom campaign on a fixed income. Catherine? Uh, Catherine Sweden, she's a wonderful woman. You'll find her on social media. Mama Sparkles is her handle on Twitter. Um, we can give you the program notes for her, but that, that poor man has been held hostage. I believe he's a hostage now. Trumped up charges, locked up in the communist Chinese gulag prison system. And our government pretty much did nothing up until a few years ago to help him. So travel, international travel is relatively safe, but you have to have some preparation. If you're gonna to go to a place like China that you know locks up, or Russia, you know, the whole, there's two or three people being unlawfully imprisoned there also, do your homework. Pick another country, maybe. Uh, yeah, the odds of you being taken hostage or prisoner in some of these places are are low, but you're still running the risk. Right. Is yeah. that a risk you want to take? I mean, it's up. I don't know. You could get. It's up to you. But remember, you're going to spend a lot of time in probably in in some of these places. You will spend a lot of time in prison. We represent two Americans right now who are unjustly imprisoned in Ecuador. Stevenson Brothers from the Washington, D.C. metro area. Go to a website called Justice Ecuador. People will find it easily there. Go to the Global Liberty Alliance website and you'll be able to pull down some of these cases. And these two men have been falsely accused of committing an atrocious crime. And this is a case that gives you an, an idea of the sort of cases GLA likes to do because it covers almost every variable of what we focus on. We focus on defense of fundamental rights, uh, free enterprise and rule of law. And here you have these 
two Americans who went to Ecuador because they wanted to have an ecotourism business. That was their dream. That's what they wanted to do. The younger of the two brothers, Roger John, uh, traveled with his dad and his brother to several different countries looking for a place to open their ecotourism place. This is what he wants. This kid comes out of college and he didn't want to do anything else. He just wanted to do his own business. And he couldn't do it here, so he looked for a place. He found land. He bought it. He cultivated the land, made it a working farm. It's a huge place. He worked with the local indigenous communities, gave them jobs. And then they came and, you know, there's a conflict. And it seems like we can't get too much into details yet because we're still trying to sort out the case. But right. it seems to have been a dispute by locals who were upset that these American, African-American kids, by the way, men, uh, were having all this success. And they were making an area of, a very rough area of Ecuador, profitable and making land useful. Before, it wasn't really well taken care of. The, the farm was a mess. And we believe, according to the Ecuadorian council down there who defended these men and who we team with to try and get them out of prison down there, that it was just a local, they were framed for something, a uh, very serious crime. It was murdering two people, two indigenous peoples. Uh, but from the moment we saw that file, and this case came referred to us by a remarkable organization called the Foley Foundation. Uh, they're, they're also they're a, a good group that was started by Diane Foley and her husband um, to honor the legacy and memory of Jim Foley, a a reporter who was slaughtered by ISIS. I'm sure you remember I those remember cases. That. Remember that? Remember Jim Foley? Was, wasn't he from South Florida? Yeah, he had, he had Florida connections also. Yeah. He, had, he had been down here for a while, but he 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 got kidnapped by ISIS, mm -hmm. and he and a bunch that. of other Americans were brutally, savagely murdered. And it was such an honor to be with Diane in federal district court in Virginia uh, earlier this year to see one of the many people involved in the network of killing be tried for what they were involved with. Talk about justice and power. Talk about seeing the mother and father and family members of a slain American sitting in court with the with one of many people who were involved in the brutal killing of Jim Foley and some other people. So they they reach out to us about that case, the Ecuador case, the Stevenson case. And from the moment we opened the, the record, we knew there was for sure due procedural errors. These men were not afforded due process, zero. They weren't even afforded translators. Oh they were tried God. on two different counts. They didn't stick, unrelated to the, 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 the underlying charge. The judge threw them out. So they found another one and accused them of something that they did not do. And they have refused, by the way, to leave. They've been offered multiple times to leave if they would admit it. They, they go, we're not going anywhere. We got to get our record clean. We got to get our names clean. We got to find the people who did this to our friend. Caught. And that's Ecuador, a country that we send millions of dollars every year for foreign aid. We have paid to help train their judges. We have trained to reform their court system and legal system. And now they're using that against our own people. How's that, how's that right? Look at what happens in Ecuador, by the way, in the prisons. Just, last, just this year right before the summer, right at the peak of the summer, a bunch of men were beheaded. Some of them had their hearts cut out. And I've seen these videos. 
Okay, I've seen these videos. Imagine sleeping next to people that will cut out your heart while you're awake. These men have seen these sorts of things. Okay, one of them is sleeping next to someone that has an AK-47 inside a prison. And on the other side, one of the most notorious gang members that runs drug cartels inside the prison. This was a while ago. Now they've been moved around a few times. But how is that acceptable? You can't treat prisoners that way, first of all. I don't care how bad they are. But you're letting people in a, you're letting people in a prison cut heads and cut out hearts. You just let it happen. And it's not just happened once. It's happened multiple times. You got these Americans locked up down there, Sounds and our like government a just movie. sat there. Of course, it's, yeah, it's a horror movie. I mean, look, we've been doing horrible things to each other for centuries. But right. remember, in the Bible, it says there's nothing new under the sun, right? I believe that. I do too. But we have tools you, not to do something just, about it, right? Like you just don't think that that could happen now. It happens now, and it happens with a lot more frequency than we want to admit. And the this case, this, this particular case of the Stevenson brothers that the Global Liberty Alliance took on, it was evident from the very beginning that the trial, all of it, just from the transcript, you can tell. One of the prosecutors got this barred and jailed. And these men are still there. Oh my goodness. So right now, the defense counsel down there, to sum, out, you know, sum it up, um, they have filed a, I guess it's, it's a, a series of motions under their legal system to have all this exculpatory evidence, including DNA, that they never looked at. They never took DNA from our clients. So zero evidence. Well, there was evidence, but it was all, it was, it was spoiled evidence. It was evidence that wasn't collected correctly. And it was just, like, as one of the defense lawyers said to us, Jason, if this were in your legal system, these guys wouldn't even spend two weeks in jail. Right. And they're embarrassed, by the way. So the people, so these lawyers that we work with in these countries, they want to do right. And by the way, some of these lawyers are not in the same ideological persuasion that we're from, but they honor the profession. They believe it can move something in the right direction, but they're powerless because the system is so broken. So if you're an American traveling to any of these countries and buying land in a foreign country, you need to be careful. It's not a given that the U.S. will come help you. In fact, in most cases, they can't. Fortunately, for you know, there's been some new laws passed. One of them is called, the, uh, and this is a, has a good Florida connection also, the, the Levinson Hostage Recovery Act. I massacred the name. It's, it's a lot longer than that. But <laughs> it's named after Bob Levinson, who um, is up here. Congressman Ted Deutsch, he's up in Palm Beach area, Democrat. Champion, big time champion of, of the hostage issue in, in the state of Florida delegation, the good guy. And... He was involved in helping get that law enacted along with many other members of Congress from Florida and, and, and New Jersey and some other states who are championing hostages. And this law now creates a new process that gives powers to the State Department and must do certain things. But it's still not a given that your case would be an unlawful detention case. Because you not only have to exhaust, we don't have to exhaust, but you need to do certain things in these countries and then prove to the U.S. government that you're being held because you are an American and you're being held for reasons that um, go beyond breaking the law, if you will. And it's, a long, it's a long analysis that you do, but ultimately, it's no, my point is no quick fix. So if you ever get arrested- Be arrest, careful. Be careful. I mean, yeah. and by the way, that's, if you're gonna go to a foreign country and break the law, I mean, you know, Griner, the whole Russia Griner case, mm -hmm. When she broke the law, 
Yeah. Whether we, I mean, look, do I think Russia's drug laws are draconian? Yes, they are. But it's common knowledge, you can find this on the internet, that they have zero tolerance for any form of marijuana, cannabinoid, mm -hmm. any of that, zero tolerance, nothing. So if you get- It's you, their business, right? It's, like it's, their, it's how they choose to conduct their-, their th Right, so if you're gonna travel to their country and you assume the risk, respect their laws. If you don't respect their laws, right. well, that's what happened to her. Uh, but uh, that is really a lesson to take for any country you go to. But these men, they were obeying the law. They just got caught up in a, it looks like a political problem that's very complex. And it's a dispute that goes back decades between the indigenous communities mm. in that part of Ecuador and the central government. And that can happen in many countries in the Western hemisphere. So if you're not careful. Yeah. But but these men are there, and one of them, by the way, I, I left the most one of the most important facts out. One of them is dying from stage four cancer. Oh my lord! Stage four cancer, and we still cannot get the U.S. government mobilized to That's engage directly. Yeah, well, it's rough, uh, but it's a lesson. They're also tough guys, smart guys, good people. And they stay focused and they stay, in spite of what they're going through, they have a very optimistic focus and they just want justice. And of course, we don't want to lose Ronell to cancer. So that's why we've, we've urged the Ecuadorians and we've urged the U.S. government in many different ways, directly with them. It's, you know, we have to figure out a way to help these men. As Americans, there's no bigger duty right now, we think, in Ecuador than this, hmm. period. They're not, they're not the only Americans either, by the way. But on just attention, they're the only ones that I know of in Ecuador. There could be others. And there's some others in other parts of the hemisphere as well. I mean, there was a kid in Nicaragua here from Miami. I forgot his name. He's a good kid. We didn't represent him. But he was a, a veteran, a U.S. veteran, who was brutally attacked after the 18 de Abril movement in Nicaragua. I remember the huge mm -hmm. uprising. This kid was tortured physically. He's had, I don't know how many surgeries. He has been hurt. I'm not sure what we've done to hold that regime to account for what they did to Americans. So there was a time when you even looked at America in the wrong way. In fact, that's the way it should be. If you even look at an America in the wrong way, or they do something, there should be immediate action by the US government. It should never be allowed to fester to that point. Okay? Yeah. Period. We have a ways to go. We're getting better. Well, we have a ways to go, but things are getting better. But it's going to take some time. So if you're going to travel internationally, folks, uh, do your homework. Yeah, definitely do your homework. Yeah. Um, so the as you mentioned uh, throughout our conversation, the GLA doesn't just focus on cases in Cuba. You no. are uh, pretty much all over. Uh, can we talk about the Brazilian-Cuban medical crisis? Yes, that was one of our earlier cases. That And to give you how we work, by the way, we, we team up with lawyers or human rights defenders we do not, we need to be invited right. into a country to work. And we team with local council. And then of course, you also have to have some US issue. It has to impact the US somehow. So we really are very careful about case selection, of course, and we don't want the enemy to see us coming. So we're very careful uh, where we pick the cases, but when we pick them, they have to be high impact cases. And we have to have some team in place, local council, 
to move the process. And that's in the Brazil case, uh, it was a, a that was a case that was connected to the Guatemala and it also has an Uruguay, um, Uruguay connection. And it was our initial effort to combat medical, Cuban medical brigade uh, uh, trafficking in persons, which as you know, in Cuba, you can become a doctor. Some of those doctors are pretty good doctors. Some of them are here in our community in Miami, uh, operating, you know, they're having their own practices. They're good doctors, some of them. Um, but anyhow, you go through the Cuban system and the elite of the Cuban medical school system, if you're also ideologically a militant or pure, or they think they can trust you, they'll put you in one of these international brigades. And I'm going to just go over it quickly to get to the case, but I think you need, you need the context for your viewers to kind Absolutely. of follow it. And, and the, um, you are picked, sometimes you're forced to serve on these medical brigades. They've been around since the 60s. And, you know, they go off and... They perform some, I call it the weaponization of medical care. In America, you're a doctor, you join Doctors Without Borders, or you join any organization, there's many of them. We have probably hundreds of them, small and large, uh, or doctors that go out on their own to do mission work, and they voluntarily give up their time to perform surgeries. And also, I mean, Dr. Rand Paul, for example, he's, you know, he goes off and he does surgeries. I'm pretty sure he still does it. And you have other doctors that do it. But in Cuba, you're put into this system, organized in a military type structure. And it's called brigade for a reason because it's a medical brigade. And then they deploy you to these countries where they want to spread their revolution in addition to giving free medical care. So, you know, I'll go in there for a physical and then get a little dose of socialism while you're at it. And they'll proselytize the gospel of the, uh, you know, the gospel of the Cuban revolution to people and slowly, you know, convert and spread and if you refuse to do this sort of thing, and by the way, these brigades are police. They take away your passport. Mm -hmm. They have a minder, okay, with an intelligence officer. So it's almost like you're exporting that Comité de Defensa Revolución type structure yeah. in the field of a bunch of doctors. You cannot date or fraternize with locals when you're in these foreign countries. You're under their control. And more importantly, your pay is not given to you. They give you a very small amount. Now, it's a privilege to be on a brigade. So you do receive a lot more money than the average Cuban back in Cuba. But they essentially keep, if you ask the experts, about 70 to 80% of what you were contracted out to do. So let me give you the Brazil example and the Paraguay example and the Guatemala example. For years, people focus on these brigades uh, as far as people who were trying to help you know, shine a light on it, on the human right component of it to show how there was this, you know, all this, you know, if you contract out, they're not paying you for what you're doing. They control you, take your passport away. They control you, so on and so forth. But we felt, well, well that's, and that's good. I think it's great to expose that. If they want to speak up, that's good. But we were thinking in a free enterprise focus. Okay, we know Cuba does this. The record's already documented. Why don't we focus on the government's that are signing these contracts with the Cubans. Because by the way, they do paper for everything. Everything gets documented. So we teamed up with a team of lawyers in Brazil, and these lawyers already had been kind of working on some of this already, but they needed to do, uh, they wanted to kick it up a few notches. And we said, well, what about if we do, in addition to what you're already trying to do with these hundreds of doctors that were here, why don't we try and bring a criminal case against Brazilian officials 
for signing these contracts to begin with and tell us where the money went. Let's use your freedom of information laws to do it. They did it in Paraguay as well. We had a lawyer in Paraguay who, she's a fighter, and uh, she filed several Freedom of Information Act requests. We got the contracts. By the way, they're all published on our website. And we used those contracts to see who was paying who. We, by the way, we got them. We were surprised. I, you know, you file a FOIA here, it takes months to years to get a response, if you get one in some cases. But we got the contracts. And then we use those contracts to build a human rights case against certain Paraguayan officials who had signed the contracts. And the one thing we found out that was interesting is that they weren't invoicing. The Cubans were not invoicing for their services. So Paraguay was, I mean, Uruguay was paying the Cubans millions of dollars, but there were no invoices for the services they were providing. So we were asking for, well, where are the invoices? Because under Paraguayan law, you have to invoice. You just can't pay out without right. what you're paying for. So we were able to knock out one of the missions down there. Not the biggest ones, but that initial one, we were able to knock out the recontracting of one of them. And the case continues. So now the prosecutor there is reviewing the cases that were presented to make sure that all these agreements are consistent with, uh, uh, with Uruguayan law and hopefully find the people who signed these contracts. And where'd the money go? Cuban doctors didn't get it. No. No, Cuban doctors didn't. So somebody pocketed all that money. And these are millions of dollars. In Brazil, it was a little different. Uh, Bolsonaro and company uh, brought a lot of these doctors. They're trying to get them licenses. They're trying to get them resettlement. Because they need the doctors. There's a dearth of doctors in the world right now. We need more doctors and nurses. So they needed them. Mice Medico is the program, and they, they, they've done a good job of trying to reincorporate some of these people. And if any of these doctors ever want to bring a lawsuit against the Brazilian state and the corrupt officials who did this, they trafficked in people essentially what they were doing. It's right. modern day slavery. Yeah. They take away your passport. They tell you where to eat, work, and live. They don't pay you what you, what you worked on. And by the way, then they pay some of your salary, and then they say, oh, you'll get it. But the only way you'll get it is at the end of the mission— because if you leave, we keep all your money. And Cuba produces doctors more than they produce tobacco. Yeah, it's a big, it's a big business for them. Yeah. It, and they've been able to monetize it. And, when, and at the same time, they proselytize the revolution. That's part of the... Part of the by the way, there's a lot of doctors here in Miami, which I'm sure will gladly speak with you. In fact, one of the early doctor defection cases my wife worked on when she worked with Ileana in Congress, and they're, they're both working at Mercy Hospital now. Those are the first, this is back in the late 90s. Those are the first two that were, were, were removed from that process. And through them and some others that have come since, we've learned a lot more how that program is, is run. And that's what that uh, GLA was involved with those cases because we're now focusing on the countries that are signing the contract and making those countries obey their laws. I can't do anything about what Cuba's doing. Right. I mean, they're going to do what they want. But these are democracies, right? Yeah. These are democratic republics, right? These are our friends. So why are you signing contracts that traffic? You're basically trafficking in people. Mm -hmm. That's wrong. So that's kind of that's 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 the sort of work we try to do. That brings in those elements into a case. That's genius. No, it's it's free enterprise. <laughs> it's a, it, that's amazing. The the work that you all do is just well. We could do a well, lot more. It's a blessing to be able to do it. It's kind of be able to turn your your legal skills to do this sort of thing and and have 
the team of people that we, we can work with and eager people that want to be engaged in these battles and people who want to be involved can be involved because again, we, 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 again, we shift resources to support these cases. Right. And then we find a few who tend to be the more uh, that we think long-term will have a huge impact once we succeed, but then also do the accountability phase of the project. It doesn't end once you solve it. You also have to be, in some of these cases, do accountability. So the law and the policy become a tool. And we think if we find like-minded liberty warriors in the hemisphere, for example, uh, that we'd be able to affect change over time. Yeah. And it takes time. Let's bring it back to America. Mm -hmm. What can you tell us about the Whitaker Chambers farm? What do you know about Whitaker Chambers? I only know what I read <laughs> in your website, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, it's one of the early projects. My, my law partner and I are very good friends, Mauricio uh, Tamargo, who I've known for a long time. Uh, he's uh, it's one, of the, one of the early projects. I mean, Whitaker Chambers, we could do, again, another show on Whitaker Chambers. If anybody's never read this book, it's called Witness, okay? Right it was, ri it was ri written by Whitaker Chambers, um, and it's uh, one man's journey, basically. It's a classic, by the way, if you're engaged in the conservative movement. You need to read Whitaker Chambers, Witness. It's one of the books Ronald Reagan used to keep in his library. It's a heavy read. First half of the book is his journey through um, from being a communist, and he was in the communist movement in America. I mean, he, he talks about all of it. Wow. And Alger Hiss and all of that, penetration of our government by the communist. He was part of, you know, one of those cells. But he, you know, he found God. I'm not gonna give away the story. It's a good read, it's a heavy read, but it's worth a read, especially if you're a freedom thinker, it's a good piece. And the second half of the book, talks a lot about uh, more contemporary things, but it gives an instruction, a guide for that time frame in, in that movement. The, the farm, okay, we're skipping over a lot, but the farm is a National Historic Landmark. Uh, it, it was during the Reagan administration, I think it was designated National Historic Landmark. That was very controversial when Reagan did that, oh my God. The left doesn't like, in fact, the left despises Whitaker Chambers and say, you know, say he's a liar, and that all that he wrote in that book was made up, and there's all this back and forth, and it's just phenomenal read. So I recommend the book. That makes me want to read it it's even a, more. It's a good book. <laughs> it's, it's an awesome, awesome book. Uh, but that farm, and your, your, your viewers can look this up, just Google Whitaker Chambers Nixon, um, and he hid the evidence, okay? I'm not gonna give away the book, but I'm gonna give you a little nugget, and you can read the book. So he had in his possession some microfiche. You know what microfiche are, right? Those old school, um, it's kind of an old way of saving data before the internet, kind of photography, fo records. He had a bunch of records that had been photographed. He rolled them up, he had his microfiche again, read the book, and they were hidden on his farm inside pumpkins, hollowed out pumpkins. Anyways, I'm going to just Google it and look for it. Fast forward to why we got involved with this. Because there were some encroachments coming from the, from the government, local government in Maryland. There were some zoning disputes, some things that were happening where the family was concerned that the farm 
could have been, you know, some things could have happened to the farm uh, because they were potentially trying to do unlawful takings. Never got to that, uh, but we were involved. We helped out. And Mauricio was very involved with that case. And fortunately, the farm is there and that we know of, it's fine. And it's a, a project to help make sure that that important place in history, Cold War history, if, you, if, you, if you're into the history of the Cold War, you need to know about Whitaker Chambers and the farm and the pumpkin and the microfiche and the pumpkin and Richard Nixon on the property. And there's all these pictures. Uh, and we were, it was a, that was a property rights case to make sure yeah. that uh, the local government did not encroach on the rights of the family and the farm to function as a farm and as a national historic landmark. What do you think about all these um, monuments and things that oh, more. Oh, are boy. being removed? And oh, that's crazy. Names being switched no. around. No way. I was in Virginia during all that debate, and I was shocked. In fact, near near our office is an old town during the pandemic. Uh, in old town, Alexandria, Virginia, there was this very famous statue that had been there forever in the center of the road. And during the pandemic, during the lockdown, the city government, city of Alexandria, it was a monument uh, dedicated to the soldiers that died in the south from that part of Virginia. And they removed it. They asked, it was owned by a private family, a private foundation. But they were worried that the uh, protests would result in the statue being defaced or destroyed. So for some reason, we weren't involved with that. It was removed. So I drove by when the statue was gone. And in the next week or two, they removed the pedestal, the city did, at night. They paved over the road, monument's gone. It's not there anymore. And this is like 10 miles or so away from Mount Vernon, our founding father's home and birthplace, a place I love to go and I visit frequently. And it's shocking that that sort of behavior is being tolerated in our country. That's the sort of thing you see in communist Cuba mm -hmm. or communist China. And in Virginia, you know, it was ground zero for a while uh, out there in Loudoun County, the big battle with, you know, Critical race theory that continues that that's that's still raging, and really? it's still raging, but in a good way because a lot of the it's a new generation of political activists that surfaced and got engaged with the school boards and parents. You know, your daughters, and you start trying to poison your daughter's mind, you're going to say something. Mm -hmm. No, you're not going <laughs> to let it. And schools have no business doing that. No. So that whole period was rough. I think you need to leave your history out there, good and bad. Yeah. You're trying to erase history. You're also erasing your culture and your identity. And nobody's saying our country's perfect, far from it, but we're pretty darn good. And we're pretty darn good at healing. And we're I believe all this is a weaponization of our history. Um, there's a lady in Virginia who's a recent arrival from China. Uh, she's been on Fox News a few times and done the talk radio circuit. And she compares it to the Mao, you know, Maoist type brainwashing. You got nothing to do with the statues. It's just a narrative. By the way, narrative has been happening since the Cold War. This whole division business about the Russians were masters at it during the Cold War, and they're probably still at it, so are the Chinese, of using that type of information warfare nonsense on us, on our people. So it's it's serious. And I do believe it has an international flavor to it. And I'm a little bit disappointed at the conservative movement, mostly the Republican Party, because they were they, just, they were cowards. They 
they did not push back on this. They allowed it to happen. I, I, I never understood that reaction or lack of reaction. Because they just, they lost, they, they've lost the stomach to fight. They were, they were playing defensive politics. And, you know, De Governor DeSantis, to his credit, is a new generation of Republican. And he pushes back on that nonsense. And we're seeing other governors, I'm, you know, in Virginia, we have Governor Yunkin now, uh, who's, he's pushing back on that. So these are new leaders that are coming into our movement. Um, and they're going to be tested. And we're going to be watching them. But again, it's not a Republican or a Democrat issue. It, that whole f ugly phase is not over. That's just the opening shot. They are going to keep at this. They are not going to stop. Whitaker Chambers talks about this in his book. Even though he wrote this during the Cold War, he deconstructs the mind of a communist. It's a, let me tell you, it's an, it's an intense read. It's not a happy read. The first half of the book mm -hmm. is rough reading. It's a little dark. It's a little dark. It has its dark edges. But it continues. And this manifestation of the statue removal is just one aspect of it. The defund the police movement, the critical race theory that they say doesn't exist but does, the rewriting of history, the balkanization of our country. I'll give you one little anecdote. I know you're running out of time, but I want to no, give you a quick. No, no, we're I wanna, okay. I want to give you a quick anecdote about a quick anecdote about something that happened in in, in D.C. many years ago, uh, involving the Smithsonian Museum. And this is going to make me a lot of frenemies for saying this, but I didn't support, for example, the creation of another museum on the Mall. You know, the National Mall, you have the Capitol on one yeah. end, Lincoln on the other end, the Washington Memorial in the middle. Right. And you have all these museums between the Capitol and the Washington Memorial and some others sprinkled on the city. Now they wanted to build this other museum of Latino history. And I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. What are we going to start doing here? We're going to start building not museums for every single... The Museum of African-American History, by the way, is different. Different in the sense that with the whole Civil War, those things that happened, it's a different... Museum. Right. When you start then though balkanizing all the other groups, we have a museum of American history right there, right next to the African American History Museum. Now they're going to build another museum, the Latino history. Look, I'm proud of my Hispanic roots and my ancestry, but I'm American. I'm not anything else. People mm -hmm. ask me, what are you? I'm an American. Period. Oh yeah, my parents were Cuban. But I don't want to be hyphenated my, my whole life on something. I went through that, by the way. I spent my first few years in Washington having to explain to people why I sounded the way I did. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I didn't grow up with that. Yeah. But they want to know, you. It's, it's natural, you know, people want to know what tribe you're, <laughs> what tribe you're a member of and all that. But I'm, but I'm, I'm American. Mm -hmm. I'm not Cuban-American. I'm an American of Cuban ancestry. Yeah. I mean, I'm very proud of my Cuban roots. But the moment our country starts to divide that way, and we accept it, that balkanizing of our people, that's creating disunity and division. We have a constitution, we have a declaration of independence, we have founding documents, we, got a, we, we have a good system. I think it's an ingenious system for its simplicity. It's a very simple system, separation of powers. It's been duplicated, but it will never be perfected by anyone else but us. I believe, I believe that. And we get off on these tangents, spending taxpayer money on a 
museum system that now is going to, I'm telling you, it's gonna, they're going to create another ethnic museum at some point. That's not American. And Republicans voted for it. I mean, there was a great piece, I don't know if it was the Wall Street Journal or the Hill newspaper, uh, by a few of the people who initially, on the conservative side, who initially supported it, who said, we made a mistake. This is about two weeks ago. Because why? Because they're trying to rewrite American history. Okay? And that's, we have to push back on that sort of thing and not be shamed into keeping quiet. Were our founding fathers perfect? No. But nor are any of these people we have here today. Far from it. <laughs> I mean, come on. At least our founding fathers founded something. They founded something. And something that's obviously working because we're all here. And they sacrificed, by the way, a lot. They a did. lot of our political class today is very spoiled. All right? They had the benefits of liberty and freedom. They're not losing their businesses. They're not being jailed. They're not being hunted down by the British. Mm-hmm. They're not putting everything on the line. These men and women did. So when you compare what they did to the way our political class acts today, it's, there's no comparison. Some of these politicians got to Washington, the first thing they're thinking about is writing a book. <laughs> I mean, do yeah. something for God's sakes. Yeah. Write a book? Come on. It's ridiculous. Why do you think Trump had such success? We knew Trump was going to win the nomination. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we knew that. We, we, when I say we, I mean those of us in Washington who have been right, there a long time. In the... It's not because we were magical sages or anything, but we saw in the Republican Party this professional cookie-cutter politician that kept going to Washington, saying one thing and doing something else. Mm -hmm. How many years have we, have we heard Republicans saying, oh, let's cut the federal debt? Yeah. Oh, let's cut regulations. Oh, it's in the Department of Education. Oh, you know, come on, we can rattle these off. You know what they are. Eventually, people stop believing you. Look at our debt. Look at our debt. That, to me, is a bigger danger than anything that's happening over in Ukraine, for God's sakes. And now they want to come after, by the way, crypto. They yes, want to come after new markets. They want to come after crypto, new markets. They're trying to criminalize through the regulatory super state the free market. That's what they're doing. But people seem to be okay with it. So I think we're, we're balkanizing our society in a way, getting back to your question. And it, it, it's just that we have politicians that haven't been held to account. And we need to change that. Because if we don't, yeah. the left's going to keep, it's not monuments only. It's not about the monuments. It's about reshaping and dissolving what you and I know is America. That may sound kind of extreme, but it's a battle that's going to fall to your kids, probably. No, I mean, um, I am there with you. I was, I was still in the classroom when the whole take a knee started. Um. And for the life of me, I could not understand what was happening. Because I here I have the classroom full of... 80% immigrants mm -hmm. who should be so grateful that they're sitting in a classroom with Amen. AC, Nikes on, iPhones in their pockets, food guaranteed in three hours, books and laptops. And here they won't stand up for the Pledge of Allegiance because... Well, you could take the need to insult your country, but you could take the need to insult your country, but then... And I remember you know, in, that, in that particular class, it was such a large class, I had to have a co-teacher. And my co-teacher just looked at me going, what the hell is going on? <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to step outside because I need to breathe. 
And then I'm going to come back in. I'm going to try this all over again because I want to respect your ideas and and your reasoning for things. But at the same time, you know, there's been that narrative. And now we see it all over of being ashamed to be an American. That's what they want. And people die. That's what they want. To be an American. Amen. And here you are sitting. I don't want, you know, I don't want people to know I'm from America. What? I don't get it. Well, it's a narrative that's not just... It, first of all, it didn't happen overnight. And it's been coming for decades. And it's something yeah. that the international left fights against because they know that the, what, with the promise that we have, individual, independence, you take control of your life. I want to drive an SUV. I have one. I'm proud of having a gas guzzling SUV. And it doesn't make me any less of, an, of a steward of the environment. All right. But that's not what they want. They don't want you to be free. They want you to be running around in public transport. Mm-hmm. They want to control you. It's all yeah. a form of control. We don't want to think that, but it is a it form is. of control. And you saw it during yeah. the pandemic. I agree with that. And I think it goes down to the most basic, which is they've taught us to equate our morality or each other's morality with our political parties. That's right. Yeah. And I think that's just so dangerous. Very dangerous. Just because I tell you I I'm conservative or I'm a democrat, now you can be you can feel safe. You can say, "Oh, she's a good person." You know, she's she's a democrat. She's or she's a republican. She she's a good person. She has these qualities and that is just so far from the way human nature works. And most people don't think that way, uh, except that when they get to your kids at a young age, which is what's so worrisome, yeah. when they get, especially into the public school system, which I don't call them schools anymore, I call them indoctrination centers. Indoctrination camps. You're absolutely are. right. They look like prisons. They, yeah. Some of our schools look like prisons, the outside of these schools, and they're indoctrination centers. I don't know how I, it's working right now, but I know that last I was there, for 10th grade, we were given a book. All novels were removed. We were given a book that was all nonfiction, so articles mm-hmm. and a script. You had to read from the script. And if someone walked in and you had gone off on your own, you had gone rogue, you, you, you knew trouble. there were going to be consequences. You would get in trouble. Is that why we're losing teachers from the teaching? I the believe that's one of the main reasons, because we're no longer autonomous beings. We are these robots that need to read from scripts, and you need to say the right thing all so, the time. So, so the teachers, I think, do they push back on, on the testing, or it's not the qualification? They push back on they're not allowed to teach? I mean, what, what's the issue, you think? Or it's just that you don't have autonomy in the classroom anymore? I mean, you can't be yourself and craft a lesson plan the way you want to. I mean, I, so it's been five years since I stepped away. But when I w- was there, last I was there, it was very much like that. Yeah, you had very little autonomy. Very, very little. Imagine exposing kids to that at a young age. I don't know how people... I mean, I was lucky. You know, my parents sacrificed a lot to put us through Catholic school. Yeah. Because my parents didn't... They felt, I don't want to put them in the public. My wife went to public school. She, mm-hmm. by the way, she's the smart one of the two. Graduated <laughs> with honors. I mean, she is. I mean, she was a good student. Very good student. Very bright. And she went to public schools. She had a yeah. good experience. But when she came home, 
mom and dad were there. They had to check everything, to make sure everything, everything is okay. Everything was yeah. checked. They were getting a second education yeah. at home. I don't know if you can even do that today, given that both parents usually have to work. Mm -hmm. But the public school systems back then are not what we have today. No, and it's I, I think most teachers, they are. And even in Virginia, where, you, where I thought we have some good schools in Virginia, I've been told that by teachers who've left, that no, yeah. they're indoctrination places. I mean, it's, we, it's, it's, it's scary. Crazy. And they don't pay them well. And I feel for those teachers that are still, that are still in it and are working hard and are trying their very best to really provide quality education to those students. But it's so difficult because they have zero support. And, the t and, no and, and a note on your students, by the way, with the phones, you, you brought a thought, you reminded me of something. You know, when I was going to school, as I mentioned to you, my parents wanted us in Catholic school. So they had to work. You know, my dad was an auto part salesman. My mom was, you know, working as a manager in a beauty salon business that she, that she, she didn't own it. She was just working for it. So they were, they had to work Yeah. to scruff it out. I didn't know how much until much later in life. But I've been working since I was about 13 years old and going to school full time. I was doing both because I wanted to help them out. I didn't think, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a lot of work for them. And that, that's what we did back then. And uh, it taught me at a very, very young age, the value of hard work. Right. And we didn't complain about it, we just did it. And I didn't have all those tools that people have now, computers. I mean, I went to school the old fashioned, you know. You had to use a typewriter. Typewriter. Go to the library. Library. there was no Google. There was no Google. Yeah. So now you have all these wonderful tools at your disposal. And you can go to school wearing $100 shoes or $200 mm -hmm. shoes that maybe you can't afford. And- The Gucci belts. All that stuff that I, yeah. And I see this new generation coming out. There's all these, like you said, oh, I want to hide being American. And there's almost like this shame factor about, yeah. and I don't quite understand that uh, because America's not that way. America is always about building yourself up no matter what. You don't complain, you go, you build. And there's opportunity here. At least when I was growing up, there was opportunity. If you worked hard, you know, there's no free, there are no free lunch. Even there's nothing in life. All my clients who've been successful clients, for example, none of them had it handed to them. None of them. It's all tough. Now we're creating a generation of people who, we're trying to shield them from suffering and pain and now and, and oh, work. We don't and give this. them the tools to deal with that inevitable aspect of living. It's it's tough. It's so tough. But I think people are waking up to that. I, I hope think, so. I think so. And the pandemic, by the so. way, shook the America yeah. to the core. So what the left wanted to do didn't work. It had the opposite effect. I, I think so too. I believe. And I think I'm very hopeful that people are, are taking more control of their lives and they're taking more ownership of what's happening to their kids. And I, again, I've said it multiple times today, deregulate, respect property rights and get government out of the way. All right. Yeah. You do that, you let people get out there and build and build and build and rebuild and remake this great city that we have here, for example, good things are gonna happen. But the moment you start tinkering with that, and you start having government meddle in people's lives or telling them what to do or eroding their fundamental freedoms through regulatory tyranny, because it's real. It's not just federal regs. Federal regs trickle down, all right? They trickle down into state, local, and municipal regs. Then they start regulating up here. And you got the tax code hanging over you. And most families working like beasts to mm -hmm. send what? More than half of their income to the federal government effectively. And you're just destroying free enterprise.
So yeah. I think people are waking up to that, and that's a good thing. How can people support the GLA? Well, you're yeah. supporting GLA. I mean, you're, you're, you're helping shine a light on some of the work that we do, and that's a big help. So share her show. Um, support folks like this podcast because we need liberty warriors. You're a liberty warrior. I mean, you're out here uh, spreading so. the gospel of uh, free, uh, you know, free speech and debate and discussion. And that's good. And that's one way you can be an effective liberty warrior. Of course, we take donations. Our goal though is to become self-sufficient, and we've talked about this before. We we uh, before the program, we, we we like to be able someday to be completely crypto-based type operation where we create something and get rewarded yeah. for it based on what you're producing and supporting. So there's many ways. That's going to uh, be so cool. We're going to get there. Yeah. Uh, but right now, yes, we'll, we'll take donation of time and money. So anybody wants to donate time, you don't have to be a lawyer to help. If you know someone out in in the region, Latin America especially, although we work cases in the Middle East also, and we have done some work in Europe uh, on working group arbitrary detention cases. If you know lawyers in those parts of the world who want to get involved and volunteer their time and help us build networks, let us know because we are connecting groups of people. And that's part of the, the, the initiative is to find like-minded folks who want to, especially lawyers who want to defend and work in these types of cases, defend fundamental rights, but from a free enterprise focus. All right. It's very important. It's very different from the other approach. Key, key words. <laughs> yes. It's, it's, it, those are buzzwords. Yeah. So, so let us know because we would love to connect with them. We will head out to your place if we have to virtually or physically and recruit and help bring people on board and help train a new generation. We, we're also yeah. do, we've taken many interns uh, from law schools up here at FIU. We had a large crop of interns a no, few years ago. That's my alma mater. It was, so I went there undergrad. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. Before I went up, to, that's, what, that's where I did my political science. I love that today. school. It's a good place, good people. And our first crop of interns came out of FIU. And then we've had some from George Mason Law, FIU Law, and some other schools. So we recruit from there as well. And we have a lot of cases, a lot of work. Uh, so we can always recruit, especially Spanish-speaking hmm. folks that want to help do this sort of thing. We will assign you a case as well. And if someone needs your help? What's the best way? Go to globallibertyalliance.org. Uh, there is a tips line there. You'll find on the top of the top of the website, you'll see tips. And you can email us directly. Uh, that's a secure email. But you can also reach out to us through other applications. And uh, just reach out to us via email. You'll find it on our website under the tips number. On, on your mission statement, mm -hmm. you have a quote which I loved, um, from America's founding father and second president, um, John Adams. It says there never was a democracy yet that did not commit suicide. Well, we're living it right now. If, if you could spend the day with any American historical figure, who would you choose? George Washington. George Washington? Not a doubt. He's my favorite all-time yeah. favorite uh, historical figure. I know that's kind of old sounding <laughs> no not at all i mean if you're gonna pick one i can see why i go to george washington i think that's yeah. who i'd start with i think he's uh one of our most underappreciated uh, founding fathers which day out of his life would you spend with him i'd want to spend time with him when he was surveying he used to be a surveyor and i just wanted to connect with someone who was in his formative years i know the rest of his life right right i just want to know what he was doing 
when he was surveying Virginia and going to other places and then lead up to when he was first deployed and got engaged in the Virginia. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's kind of sounds kind of odd, right? You know. No, not old at founding all. Founding father, but that he'd be the first the first historical figure I'd like to uh spend some time with. The next one will probably be Thomas Jefferson. You know what's the, you know what's the theme? Virginians. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then George Mason would be the other. Yeah. Yeah. Those, those are the three that I would like to spend some time with. Those they all are, come at it from three different ways. Those are some some good ones. I old, think older, I would older choose. Who, who would you pick? I would choose. And just because I feel like I'm slightly obsessed. Um, <laughs> I don't know what this Which is one? about me. Um, Abraham Lincoln. Abe Lincoln. That makes yeah. sense. And I would love to be in the audience when he was doing the Lincoln-Douglas okay. debates. Okay. Uh, oh, my God. I Yeah. That'd be if intense. somebody invents a time machine. They will. Maybe Metaverse or something. That, I don't know. Yes, bring these, exactly. Bring these things to we life can, somehow. Like, use see, the Oculus <laughs> and sit there and just let him do his thing. He, yeah. What about ancient history? Who would you? Who would you? How oh far God. back? How far back would you go? Do you think? Oh my gosh. Or any other historical figure that's not American. Hmm. Anything. Well, I for sure would like to go to. Um, the, the Library of Alexandria. Okay. okay. Yeah. And just like see what the heck is going on, right? <laughs> like, I want to see all these books. Yeah. Um, uh, to, oh, man, that's a good question. I don't know. Plato. I, well, okay. I want to talk to him and see where Atlantis was. He could tell <laughs> he us. He could tell you where it is. <laughs> <laughs> Find the treasures. Yeah. That's neat. Uh, yeah, I think him. Okay. Definitely. Okay. Maybe Jesus. That's where I go. Cause That's, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna hear it from the horse's mouth. That'd be nice to see that. I'd like to be there, Sermon on the Mount, maybe, you know, yeah. something like that. Yeah. That's that's the only other person I probably want to kind of time warp with. Right. Maybe someday we will. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know what's gonna happen. It's Father. Sorry, Father Idiot. I know I should not have answered <laughs> that way. He knows I'm joking. Oh my gosh! Hopefully he doesn't judge us too harshly. <laughs> <laughs> Amen to that. Amen to that. Um, after all, we're we're just people. We're just people doing the best that we can. Mm -hmm. What's your favorite book? Bible. Bible. Yeah. Do you do you revisit it often? daily? Daily, yeah. Yeah. That's and write on it. I know. Oh. I know. I know. Some people say you shouldn't write in the Bible, but oh I, no no no! I, do. I I think that's the only way. I'm, by, I'm on my second one now. The first one I've had to shelve because... Which is your favorite version? I use the Catholic study Bible. Yeah. I've used others. I, the first one I went through that I kind of tore to shreds was the Dewey Reams edition of the Bible, which is a little more... It's language that you kind of don't hear about anymore. You don't, you don't you, use that version as much. So I use, I'm now using the Catholic standard Bible right now. Have you uh, listened to Dr. Peterson's um, religious... I've heard, yeah, I've heard a few of them. Do you like them? Yeah, they're pretty good. Pretty intense. They're they make so you good. think. They make you think. Yeah. They make you so, think. They're so, so good. I, yeah. He's a, okay, but he's living, thankfully. <laughs> I would love to spend the day with him. You should invite him to your podcast. <laughs> oh my gosh, can you imagine? I would freak out. Why? It's Dr. Peterson. No, I think he'd be, I think he'd be a great guest here. I, I yeah, he would be a great guest. I would not be such a good host. Yes, you I, would. The whole time I would just be like, oh my God. No, 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 you'd be fine. It's Dr. Peterson. You'd be fine. So yeah, my Bible's kind of my, it's kind of the one book that I've read yeah. a lot. Still don't understand all of it. 
And I always get something new every time I read. I mean, that's why it's the Bible. Yeah. Because it's just so dimensional and and deep. It's all there. I feel like with every stage in life that you visit it, you gain something. It kind of came together. A lot of it came. Some some of the books of the Bible, especially the older ones, uh, came to, um, in the Old Testament. I mean, mm-hmm. when we when I when I went to Israel a few years ago, and I was part of one of the most, I guess, for my wife and I, it was we've we've been able, like I said, we've been blessed. We've been able to travel places and see things. Uh, that place was just phenomenal, and in how it crystallized a lot crystallizes for you that you think you know at least for those of us little you know, bible geeks that it was just interesting to go to those places that you've been reading about your whole life and being able to spend time behind the wall for example and see all those uh books torah inside behind the holy of holies it's just it was it was a neat experience and now with the city of david opening up this whole new section um that brings to life that part of Jesus's life to see where he walked in certain parts of the, what maybe you got you got to just he, folks haven't seen it go to city of david uh on just google city of david and just look at some of what they've done there it's it's a phenomenal um it's not an exhibit it's just hist- living history right. it's still there you can feel it so if you yeah. if you read the book and you've been there it's just phenomenal to be able to bring the old testament to go to the new testament and see it that's amazing so it's, neat. it's neat what do you think about the agnostic gospels i've read i've They're all right i've <laughs> I, I read yeah but no it's i i just focus on the bible but yeah. i have read i do i will read some of those i've read Things that maybe Catholics are told not to read, maybe, sometimes. I think we're on the same vein. But I think it's okay to educate yourself and have a wide knowledge and challenge yourself. My faith is strong. I'm not concerned about that sort of thing. So, But I have read. Yeah. I just think they're interesting. Um, You know, to think that someone had a different point of view. Yeah. Um, and, and but then that helps you understand how the, the, our books came together, right? Why those were exactly the ones that were yeah, chosen, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so it, it kind of does when you when you spent time reading them, uh, the Gospels, and you look at the Agnostics, it kind of does make you better appreciate why the Bible stuff the way it is. Yeah. And by the way, we're still arguing about some groups still argue about what should be and shouldn't be in the Bible. Oh yeah. For sure. It's still going on. I don't on. think that's ever going to stop. Never. I think it's never going to stop. And, you so. know, was Jesus married? And, <laughs> and the whole, yeah, yeah, I don't think we're ever going to stop discussing that. Maybe one day we'll know. But, yeah. But I believe in the Bible. Yeah. That's, 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 my, that's my compass, if you will. I think every person on the planet, whether you're Catholic or not, should read the Bible at least one time. Me good. It helps. Helps yeah. understand our communities and our peoples. I and don't think there's, and and people let me know their opinion on this, but I don't think there has been a book that has been able to look so insightfully into human nature as the Bible. Well, John three sixteen. <laughs> yeah, it it is it is a good, even for non Christians. Yeah, I think it's a good. For them, it's a, maybe a philosophical read. Mm-hmm. But I know political prisoners who've 
uh, were go went into prison as atheists or agnostics, got their hands on the Bible, and came out true believers. Yeah. And uh, found God. In fact, I know political prisoners who found God in Cuba, it's in China, special. just because they were able to get a few pages of the Bible without knowing what they were reading. So I think it's a remarkable, remarkable work. And folks, yes, they should read it. Um, is I have one last question yeah. for you. Mm -hmm. Dealing with all these heavy cases and how dirty politics can get, mm -hmm. how, how do you keep going? How do you keep that fire to, to stay involved? My wife. We've been happily married now 27 years, I think. Known each other 30. And it's just my mission. This is what my station right now is to do this. And I've always had a, uh, maybe a tolerance for being able to do some of this and not take myself too seriously, that I'm blessed that I could do this sort of thing. Hopefully we're doing some good and when you think about, you have a very finite time in this world. So we try and we urge our friends, we join our network and people who we work with, hey, make the most of it. And if this is what you're called to do, you do it. Yeah. And that's what, that's what, that's what I think. Maybe someday God will tell me something else. I don't know. But it's, I enjoy it. It's uh, hopefully something that we can build upon for other people. And in some cases, how can't we not? When you have your, you know, you, 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 you can choose to look at things and be indifferent, but then you're giving up. Mm -hmm. You're indifferent, just giving up. For some reason, I've, some of these cases chose us. We didn't choose a lot of these cases. A lot of these cases came to us. So we've been involved doing this sort of work since we were kids, almost, in different capacity, right? So we were exposed yeah. to it. We talked about hunger strikes. So maybe I numbed, maybe I was numbed to it. I don't know. No idea. I think it's my faith is a huge factor, too. It helps you stay balanced. Because life is, there's a lot of good in this world, but there's also a lot of bad in this world. And we're never going to get rid of the bad. It's a constant battle, I think, between good and evil. But we can engage in it. We can choose to be indifferent. Or we can look away and uh, find people who can help you and chart that path, let's say, to deal with some of these cases, some of these problems. Or you can just lean in 150%. I've, I've been lucky I've been able to do it, frankly. Because uh, um, I wanted to have my law degree for something other than just doing transactional work, which I love, by the way. I've done a lot of that also but right now this is where i want to use these skills and find people yeah. who enjoy the sort of work bring them along and see and see where we go with this thing well i think what you guys are doing is more than valuable i don't think there's a word that i can place on how important your work and and this organization is but there's many of us like the there's many of our groups out there though believe yeah. it or not uh, and we just uh the fact that we can bring these things together and do it, it's it's quite remarkable. And if, you, if people knew the network of people that 
support yeah. this sort of thing. It gives me a lot of optimism. So yeah, it's hard to see some of the things that we see. Some of the things that we see probably are the darkest, I guess, of sometimes you see of human nature. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, one of the worst things you could do to someone, for example, is just to deny them their freedom. Example, right? But when you deny someone their freedom and you also don't give them a, ch a shot to get out of that jam, that's even worse, I think. And then you see the inhumanity of, of how people can treat each other. How can you not engage in that space to try and at least, we believe, those of us who engage in the profession, that we can do something about it? Yeah. And it happens every day. And tip the scale back, you know? Keep balance, I guess. Yeah, for and, sure. And, and it happens every day. Every day in this town, every day around the world, the world is better every day because people engage and choose not to look away. And it happens not just with lawyers, it happens with everyone, with teachers, with police officers, with anyone, as long as you're trying to do good. I mean, look what happened here recently in Miami. You had that lady, remember who she hit that little boy and mm -hmm. then looked at him and walked away? She got caught. And justice will be done. Yeah. So well, that's the exception. So there's a lot of good in this world, folks. Don't leave thinking that everything's horrible. It, it isn't. And don't let the, uh, the media-controlled complex let you believe otherwise. It's not that way. But yeah, there's going to be some rough spots in this place. And for some reason, we've been thrust there. So we'll keep at it as long as we can. <laughs> Perfectly said. Yeah. I, Thank you, Jen, I for having us. I can't end it on, on, on a better note. Mm -hmm. And with your permission, we want to dedicate this episode to victims of tyranny and authoritarian governments Amen. throughout the world, mm. but specifically Cuba and Latin America. And with that, we want to encourage all of you guys to check out the GLA website. It'll be linked down below, along with all the other things that you mentioned. Right. And um, yeah, uh, support them and uh, share this episode with, with people you feel it will cause an impact. And as we always say, time is a top currency. So thank you for spending it with us. It's, we appreciate it so, so much. And we will see you next time.